Hello. This is episode 22 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Alexander the Great. But what if there was a third option? Perhaps Alexander would neither be afraid nor unafraid of an army of lions led by a lion. Perhaps he would respect them. That's my mission and my vision. Every man has a sacred opportunity to rule himself, to control his thoughts, words, and deeds. An army of men such as these would not only be unstoppable, we'd be transformational. Unfortunately, it's usually lions led by a sheep or sheep led by a lion. What I find so rewarding about this path is that we believe we are kin to our gods. By living an honorable and ascending life, Perhaps we too can embody them and walk in their wisdom, wit, purpose, and power as we walk out our daily path. A lion doesn't get concerned when things don't go his way, nor does he place his identity or purpose in the success or failure of the lion or sheep that leads him. He is sovereign and accepts the world for what it is, and then makes something better of it to the best of his ability. He knows he cannot control what he cannot control. So, his character is constant and clarified. Cubs look to him to become a lion themselves. He rules over his territory with sacred authority and solar benevolence. Men, let's quit complaining about what we cannot change and stop giving our power away to a culture whose approval we do not need. Be a lion and lead other lions. Only then can the honorable man become the king of the jungle once again. And that was one of my favorite pieces by one of the very interesting content creators of this solar sphere emerging on Instagram. For those of you who are Norse pagan or pagan of any kind, or those of you who are curious about Norse paganism and their beliefs like myself, uh, he's a content creator that is truly essential. Goes by the name Oaks and Oaths. He has an incredible podcast that is growing very rapidly in addition to his Instagram page. And he lays everything out in the line and saying who he is, why it is that he's come to Norse paganism, and what he is benefiting from in terms of following this path. Um, I've been wanting to speak with him for some time. We have gotten into contact since about January after I listened to a podcast of his that actually when he was a guest on the Backfill this podcast before London. So after listening to that, I knew uh, right then and there that I wanted to speak him further and uh, speak on his journey into Norse paganism and ask some questions I've had about the Norse pagan faith in point. So, Oaks and Oaks, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. And likewise, it's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you for making time to bring me on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a uh, it's time completely well spent. It's time I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, Likewise, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, you know, when I first got back on Instagram, um, and from a content creation standpoint, uh, I, I've mentioned this to my listeners, but Blood and Rain started about three years ago, almost almost to the day, really. It's, uh, it really started April 10th, 2018. Um, and that was the first iteration coming off of my first Orthodox Easter, which sort of gave me this poem, Blood and Rain, which started the Instagram page. And I had a, I had a fall from grace from my own path, and I came back leading up to the winter solstice. 
And when I came back, uh, I started to notice all these great content creators. And I started to notice that you had, um, there was a severe lack of, you know, agnosticism or atheism, that there was, there was faith being central to pretty much every, every single one of these content creators posts things. Um, there are a lot of Christians, obviously, a lot of Catholics, Protestants, and like myself, Orthodox. And then I noticed that there were endorsed pagans as well. And it's been my, my closest encounter with people of the Norse pagan faith. So that really got my, my wheels turning. And then seeing your, listening to your podcast, of course, Monday, and seeing your page, you know, that really got the wheels turning. And I started listening to your podcast and I'm enjoying it very much. Thank you. Um, so what I'm curious, um, you, you, you've touched upon this in the first episode of your podcast, but for the listeners of mine, um, could you speak a bit on sort of your testimony in terms of faith? I know you started as an evangelical Christian for quite some time. Um, but you eventually came to the Norse pagan faith, which is you've seen a rapid improvement in your life uh, attributed to. So if you could just speak on your testimony. I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. So... Yeah, I, I grew up in rural southeastern Ohio in a town called Lancaster, and it was a working-class town, pretty much dr driven by the glass factory that was there. In fact, the Anchor Hawking Glass Company still makes most of the glassware, barware that you see um, in, in most places regionally and even nationally. I, I was always surprised that I go across the country and I look down at the bottom of the glass, the pint glass, and there's that little anchor symbol that, that really is a source of pride for me for my hometown. But, uh, so my town was kind of divided, or, or kind of grouped around a central thesis. Number one was hardworking rural folks, farmers, and manufacturers, um, generally conservative politics, and evangelical Christianity. It was the zeitgeist that I was born into. And um, I was born in, as the firstborn of four children into a, a very devout family. Um, my dad and mom were very serious about their faith so much so that they raised uh, me homeschooled so I could be in the world but not of it and I remember being a child and being I remember the first thing I wanted to do when I was seven years old was be a missionary to Mexico um, there were some missionaries that came in to our, the church that we attended they told us these wild stories about their mission trips and what they said God was doing to them and it just sounded incredible to me like thinking about this culture that was different from my own. And as time went on, I I was a member of Bible Bowl, which is a stick where you essentially memorize the Bible and you're like quizzed on it. And I did really well at that. But the only sport, as being a homeschooler, I didn't play a lot of organized sports other than karate, which was individual. But uh, that's the only trophy I ever won was from Bible Bowl. So <laughs> I think I still have it someplace. But uh, um, So I did that. And then, of course, as I got older, I wasn't, I wasn't athletic because that's just not really what my family really oriented us toward. So in order for me to get girls, I had to figure something out. So I, I learned how to play the guitar. And I played the bass guitar and the electric and acoustic guitar. And when I was in high school, that led me into a different kind of sphere of influence. I really got into like like old school rock because my dad, despite being a very uh, devout evangelical Christian, he also grew up in the 60s marched in the first Earth Day Parade in Cleveland back in 1970, so he had a great taste in music. He'd always be down in his wood shop listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the, and the Who and the Guess Who and Paul Revere and the Raiders and all these like obscure 60s bands. So I really got this like deep love for that kind of music. And so 
when I was in high school, I, I really I got into Sabbath and Zeppelin and all these demonic quote unquote bands, and which definitely <laughs> grew my hair out. Which is funny because I'm bald now. So, like my dad, and my dad has this joke: I only made a few perfect heads, so the rest he gave hair. So I, I, I'm saying that a lot more now, and I used to roll my eyes at it, but uh, I, uh, I grew my hair out and everything, and I. You know, I was, like, dating, which was a, a, a big taboo when you're in that circle. You're not supposed to date till you get married, uh, you know, <laughs> in the evangelical world. But I was doing all that stuff and just having a good time, smoking weed and smoking cigarettes and drinking and all that kind of stuff. And so my faith really just kind of took a back seat. Um, and I was just interested in things that, you know, most young men are interested in, right? Like, and so went to college, uh, was in a band, we were pretty pretty successful um in our little region and uh didn't really give faith much of a thought and then i ended up meeting my wife um in columbus ohio where i was living at the time starting my first job i'm a graphic designer by trade and um we got married and she was from a christian nominal christian background in california so we both went to this um we both went to this calvinist church in columbus ohio that was we pretty much were told that we were trash every day and that we're worthless and that, you know, God hates us, essentially. And I don't know why I stuck around there so long. I think it was because our music was so good. And I had a lot of good friends there in the band. And I was, like, playing, like, gospel, like, like black gospel and stuff, which is a lot of fun to play on bass. And just, like, just jamming with these dudes and having fun. But then I eventually ended up getting a job at this uh, Southern Baptist church um, where I was essentially an environmental producer, graphic designer. I did photography um, and some video editing and things like that. And it was a great job, a good salary. I was a respected member of the team. But around this time, I just, I kept hearing all these stories about, because I, I would go to all the pastoral meetings. I was part of the staff. And, and I mean, I will say to, to their credit, the pastor of this church walked the walk and talked the talk. He was a, an honorable man, a good husband, a good father, and, you know, a man of strong character. So this isn't against him, but I hear week after week of all these people in this denomination who are either extorting money, sleeping with someone in their church, or doing all these things that, you know, they're preaching from the pulpit not to do. And so I just kind of began to get disillusioned by this, this faith, almost disconnected from it. I've always had a hard time... Um, believing in in what the four spiritual laws where i was taught in, in christianity and i did go through a phase because you're orthodox I went through a phase where a good friend of mine um went to a, a, a russian orthodox church a roca church and i went there with him and it was a really powerful experience um but just situationally i i never ended up converting to, to orthodoxy and i ended up you know kind of following the money because i was young and looking for looking for that um so what really was the breaking point for me with Christianity was in 2017, I went to the mountains of Peru. So I didn't get to be a missionary to Mexico, but I was a missionary in Peru, which is kind of ironic, given like my first uh, inkling. And I just was really disillusioned. We were up there um, high up in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains by Cusco, and in this very remote uh, tribal village called Yaqui. And the people that lived there were indigenous Inca, descendants from the Inca uh, Empire. And they still, like, the entire, all the towns up there have a very strong, like, Spanish flavor to them. They, like, they even still dress in that Spanish colonial style that was around in the 1500s during Spanish uh, conquista. And um, so you had, like, you had, like, these people, and they had their folk indigenous religions mixed in with their, like, really kind of, like, historic Catholicism understanding, which Catholicism itself is kind of 
more related to paganism than, say, evangelicalism. There's a lot of synchronicity between those two. And then we were coming in trying to convert them to this, like, <laughs> very vanilla, very American Southern Baptist Convention uh, ideology and telling people who are Catholic that they're going to go to hell even though they, you know, worship the same God. I just like, thought that's kind of kind of fucked up a little bit. And um, it was, to me, the equivalent of going into a thriving local economy and just building a Walmart there. You know, just taking the most generic, like, mass consumerist, corporatist entity and wiping out something indigenous and beautiful and local to that culture. And uh, so up there in the mountains, I remember, and this is funny because it really is a precursor to what happened later, but, like, the sun, I was up early in the morning, the sun rose over the mountains. I just looked at the sun and I felt a power. And I said, God, is that you? Jesus, is that you? And I, I felt like it was, was not. Something else was leading me on. But I, I didn't really, um, I was so disillusioned about faith, I just walked away from it. Um, so I was became essentially agnostic atheist for, man, about a year. Um, and in the meantime, I tried to find answers. I started, for the first time of my life, I'd smoked weed for a long time, but I never really experimented with psychedelic drugs. And um, so I'd done LSD at this like Grateful Dead tribute band, and it was, it was not very spiritual. It was a lot of fun. But uh, one day, I was in Columbus in my old neighborhood with my brother, and we both we both dropped acid, and um, we were walking around this beautiful blue sky, and I looked up into the sky, and I saw these symbols that I, I never had seen before, but yet felt very familiar to me. And I also had these visions of what essentially to me looked like, like, like Norsemen or Vikings, but they weren't dressed like you see them on TV. They had like these like golden robes and like purple robes, and they were in these like long ships made of light, like flying through the sky. And it seemed like this like very advanced like civilization, like almost extraterrestrial, but also very familiar. And I just got this like sensation that like I am a part of whatever that is. Like that that's my heritage. And I heard this call that said, "Follow the signs." And so then whenever that trip ended, I just, I just, I'm like, okay, well, I definitely had this strong, like, you know, n like Nordic kind of vibe from this. And that is my ancestry. I'm, I'm Anglo-Saxon and German and Scandinavian, uh, specifically Norwegian in my, my history, my heritage. So I'm like, okay, this might be like an ancestral, like memory or something rising up in me. So I started researching, you know, about this, this faith, which I knew nothing about. And then I found the rune system. And it just, like, hit me like a lightning bolt, because that was exactly what I saw in the sky. And I was like, damn, I'm like, you know, I, I thought about, you know, like, Saul on the road to Damascus when he becomes Paul, and he's blinded by the light, scales come on his eyes, and then he becomes a new man. And I feel like that was that experience for me. I went from, like, having no religious affiliation and, like, being very antagonistic toward religion to slowly and tentatively starting to walk down this path. And as I've done so, I've just I've grown in my, my knowledge and understanding of this faith um, humbly. And um, yes, it's absolutely rich my life. So that's that's in a nutshell my testimony. It's kind of kind of abstract, but that's how I got to where I'm at. I mean, a testimony is a testimony is a testimony. You know, it doesn't need to follow a certain pr progression. You know, like I mean, I um I I was in an evangelical background for about two years, two and a half years. Yeah. One of the darkest times of my life, honestly, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I am, um, you know, and I, I would hear testimonies of how people came to Christianity, and I found that, like, none of them 
sounded like mine. And that was like a source of sort of, um, I don't want to say insecurity, but it was just like a sense of like, do I really belong in this environment type thing? Um, so a testimony is what it is, you know, plain and simple. You can't refute someone's testimony. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And that's the beautiful thing across faiths. Um, so what's, what's interesting too is uh, I, I've very recently, uh, I don't say very recently, I've on and off done sort of research of sort of ancient origins, like I don't want to say the term hidden knowledge because that's been abused by certain content creators as sort of like a selling angle, like hidden knowledge. Oh, yeah. Hate uh, that shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's like some really woo-woo, cri- like cryptic for the sake of being cryptic, like in order just to draw people in type thing, which is clumsily done and people still fall for it. You know, it's just I'm not, a, not a fan of it. Um, Dude, it's like it's like the spiritual equivalent of like those pickup artists that like have these like just say these magic words and any woman will fall for you. But you have to buy my course for like five hundred bucks. You know, it's like essentially the spiritual version of that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like when, when did the be all end all for man just become getting laid? Like it's that's if that's yeah. your be all end all, that's pretty fucking sad. Man. Um, it is, man. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so. and that, that's something I've been sort of like disenfranchised with. with with, with my gender for a long time, especially in the current state of things, I was like, really? Like, this is your definition of being a man. Like, your definition of being a man is when you get off, you're going to pound a ton of beers and flirt with some chick and hope that she goes to bed with you and the next morning feel empty and never speak to each other again. If that's what the... Whew, and and then, then on well, Sunday, you can watch NFL Sunday. Like, that that's, that's the goal for you? And you want to set your life up so it's easiest to get to that point dude that's not being a man well, that's just depressing so the reason why you're so right about that is that number one you have no power in that situation if all you're doing is trying to make yourself a consumable object that you know you hope will get you know laid by some woman who has to make that choice like that's that's a very weak like dare i say it, it's kind of a cringe word but like a very beta way to think about it like with my wife, I mean, I've only had sex with her since I've met her <laughs> because she's my one and only. But I saw her in, like, this coffee shop. She was a barista. I thought she was hot. And I just went up to her one day and asked her out, like, point blank. I didn't, you know, there was no Tinder. There was no, like, you know, like, passive aggressiveness. I'm like, this is what I want. This is what I want to get. And, you know, for better or for worse, I have her the rest of my life. And it's definitely for the better. So, but, yeah, you're right, like. I can't, like, it's just so ridiculous to me to think that masculinity has just been about dull your senses with excessive amount of alcohol, um, take your hard-earned money, try to make yourself more attractive so that maybe you can get laid, and then you're going to be successful as a man. It's just, it's just so weak, man. It's just like, like table scraps kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's weak, uninteresting, uninspiring, and sad. Um, it is. But okay, so. And so, <laughs> went, on, went on a very pain point tangent there. But uh, in terms of, <laughs> and, and I, I have this with, with Forrest Bunder, with Flo Modis, with Spencer. Like we we we've had the same rant, and you know we're still surrounded by a lot of men who are like that. You know, just in day to day. So obviously that's that's going to come up more than once. But I've recently um, been revisiting. Areas of research in terms of like hidden origins of, of humanity, and that's something that a lot of Christians just won't touch because you know they, they sort of think it's just a road to heresy or a road to being led astray. But there there are certain things in history that just 
that just don't add up and that people are starting to figure out why. Um, I, I recently did a post on the, the white pyramids in China. That was about 40 pyramids uh, near Xi'an, um, which is like near the center of the country, but a bit further west. Um, I've been there, actually. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there uh, in 2018. I didn't see the White Pyramids, but I've been I've been to Xi'an, and it's it's an awesome place. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the government of China, obviously, but I, I love the people, and I love the culture there. So, yeah, that's another side tangent, but I like to travel, so, yeah. Okay, <laughs> to quickly go down the side tangent alleyway, what were you doing in Xi'an, and can you sort of describe the, the <laughs> essence of, of the place? Yeah, okay, so I wasn't there for any, any like, super cool reason. My brother, uh, who's like, also my best friend, he got out of college, and he got a teaching gig at a place called um, Xingdao, which is up on, on the eastern coast of China, like maybe about four hours north of, maybe six hours north of Beijing, um, which I also visited. And we just wanted to go to Xi'an because it was um, kind of in the desert. There was like a Muslim quarter there, uh, which is really fascinating. And it's very historic. That's where the Terracotta Army is. That's where like the there's like the the Flower Temple and the Drum Temple there. There's this great wall that's built around Xi'an to, to, to protect it um, from the Mongols. Uh, I think it was the Mongols. Maybe maybe not. But um, so we took like the hyper train from Beijing to Xi'an, which is essentially like going from Columbus, Ohio to Denver, Colorado. And that drive would take you about 32 hours. This train ride took us six hours. I'm not even kidding. The Chinese countryside, um, amazing infrastructure. But the vibe I got of that place, they didn't, that people were generally friendly toward us. It was a lot less, it was Western to some degree, because a lot of Chinese like to dress in Western clothing. But there was also a lot of rural folk clothing and folk traditions there, which I was very intrigued by. Um, and I think the culture there is really kind of a melting pot because you have this like Muslim, strong Muslim population. So you see these Chinese people, it's kind of in the desert. And of course there's the Chinese communist propaganda everywhere, and, like statues of Mao, and statues of um, Winnie the Pooh, whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> the premier <laughs> now. Of, I don't even want to say his name. But uh, I, I don't like that guy. But um, anyway, so we were there and what was interesting though is we had so much fun. We'd go to hostels and we'd like drink really cheap like Chinese beer, snow beer, or Qingdao beer, and uh, it was like thirty cents a bottle, which was great. And then we learned how to like do calligraphy and everything. But I also noticed that a lot of people wanted to. One guy in particular wanted to fight us because we were Americans. And I realized that the whole like Chinese propaganda and nationalism and anti-Western sentiment like was really like starting to creep up in the heartland over there and we got a lot of weird looks a lot of people wanted to take pictures with us because they thought we were celebrities because why else would we be there you know but some people were not happy we were there but all in all i, I really enjoyed the chinese people i thought they were very warm they were friendly to us and um their culture is just very very beautiful and ancient and i mean I, i'm a fan of ancient and old things too so anyway i digress but that yeah that's my, my chinese story <laughs> yeah i mean th that's I, I enjoy the Chinese culture quite a bit, and what's, what's kind of sad what's going on is a lot of people are blaming the the, the fiasco that will not be named on just random Chinese people that they see. Like, especially here in Oakland, it's a big mm -hmm. problem. There's a lot of violence against Chinese people. It's like, dude, this is it's not, this, it's not China that... It's not Chinese people who live near you who fucked everything over. It's the CCP. Yeah. Who, it's, the, it's the Chinese Communist Party who didn't let people know. 
let, let the world know what was going on until it was too late and they had everything squared away basically screwed the world over internationally and got ahead um, yeah. so it's it's just it's such a lack of nuance and a lack of willingness to understand but she well, that, I mean okay. yeah, yeah definitely I was just gonna say as a parallel that'd be like somebody from like Belgium coming over and blaming you for the Iraq war you know it's, it's you didn't start that war like that was that was a decision that was made far above your pay grade and it's not your fault that it happened you just happen to be an American by association so I completely agree I I, I met uh, the, the Chinese people are very careful about what they say because there is, there's mass surveillance everywhere. But I I definitely found more than I expected uh, Chinese folks that weren't necessarily happy with the way things were going. Um, they were happy with how China is modernized and how the economy has has lifted has lifted more people out of poverty, et cetera, which it which it has objectively. But at the same time, they're not happy about the like diminishment. Like you can't watch YouTube over there. Like 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 the the scaling back of of their rights and their inability to criticize the government in any way, shape, or form. There, a lot of Chinese people aren't happy about that. So, and it was funny. We were on the train. Like there would be like these like ads for all these different cities in China. And there would be these like beautifully produced CCP propaganda pieces in between all these different ads, where you would see their air force, their navy, talk about how the, the party has like lifted all these people out of poverty, all these different kind of things. So it's pervasive over there. It's like true propaganda. Fascinating, fascinating country. Yeah, it's, it's, first of all, a lot of people don't realize with China that, you know, they have a Han Chinese majority, but there's, it's, it's not that big of a majority. There, there's a lot of different ethnic groups. There's a lot of different religious beliefs. There's a surging Christian population that's like totaling 300 million. Apparently, you know, their leader who will not be named is very concerned about right now. And obviously he's been very concerned about the Muslim population, which is why he's trying to put them through genocide. So. They're 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 gonna say everything's buttoned up and squared away, but it's 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 not as it's not as calm as people realize there the situation at all. Um, but Jian's always been a fascinating place to me. Actually, when I was in fifth grade and I was supposed to write a young author's bit, um, this is uh, <laughs> so I'm writing a myth right now. But I've wanted to write a myth uh. since I was since I was since I was ten, and like I saw that category of myth, and I, I looked at it. I was like, at ten years old, I was like, I don't think I'm ready for this, and then just stopped. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna do something else. Um, so I, I wrote a story about like a marauder who wanted to redeem himself from like the Xi'an area, and I, there was just like a oh. city I picked on picked picked on a Chinese map. I didn't know anything about it, but I was like, "Ooh, what's that city over there? I never heard of that. It's kind of way out of the way. That looks interesting." And then I then I read about these white pyramids that are in that are in China. Like there's about forty of them, and in 1944, uh, U.S. Army Air Corps pilot flew over Xi'an, uh, and he noticed, he described the pyramid that was, the, the size of which can be said is twice the size of the pyramid of Giza, and com- completely white, with the exception of the top, which is like a crystal, like a jewel-like top. Um, later, there was more and more of a cover-up with the growing CCP. In 1947, tra- um, the head of TWA, Trans World America, or maybe that had a different name at, name at the time, you know, um, I think it was Trans World America by that time, you know, this is post-Howard Hughes, um, post-Howard Hughes takeover. He, um, he, he's, he mentioned he flew over pyramids, didn't see anything completely white, but there were Jesuit missionaries that were there in the 1600s who described the same white pyramids. And if you look mm. at them on Google Earth, um, the, the Chinese government have, they've, they've sort of sold this half-truth with the origins. Um, they said they're, they house Han Dynasty, um, former Han Dynasty um, leaders, 
you know, emperors um, and, and people of an emperor's court. Uh, and they planted, they, they planted grass and trees on top of them. But you can still see these, you know, very linearly shaped mounds on Google Earth. Um, but what was the, the Jesuit missionaries asked them about the pyramids and the, 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 lo the locals rather. And the locals had 5,000 years of written history at this time in the 1600s. And they, the, the reference of the pyramids goes back to the very beginning of the written history who say that the pyramids had been there for thousands of years from that point. So mm -hmm. at least 7,000 year old pyramid is just sitting there in the middle of China. And a lot of Chinese, um, oh, this is getting, okay, this and the Flow Motors podcast and the Zenobio podcast got into territory that was more controversial, but I guess that's what it is, you know? Um, Bring it, it on, man, I love it. <laughs> yeah, let's just, just dive into it. It's, um, there's, there's, there's speech of the, the people who laid out the foundations of their culture being like blonde-haired and blue-eyed um, yeah. in China. Um, and there, there's, there's reference to this in, uh, I believe, in Egypt as well. Um, there's reference to this uh, from one of, one of the places where I had more of my blood comes from, the, the Canary Islands from, of Spain, off the coast of Africa, the Juanches, described as yeah. tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. So this sort, of, sort of like predecessor race, basically, that is sort of, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the only precursor race that's sort of, that sort of bled into what we are today, but it's it's one that was very clearly advanced and built a lot of things, and that there's been a lot of sort of cover up. So, what you're describing this well, is a full roundabout circling back to your, uh, to your, you, well, basically what you saw in, in this trip of yours, uh, this very Nordic trip. It's like starting to go more and more to these advanced beings that you're seeing and seem to be central towards the Norse pagan faith. Would you say? Would you? Would you? Would you call sort of? For lack of a better term, what you saw somewhat extraterrestrial, or would you see it purely as like Nordic or divine or any of the above? That's a great question. Um, well, I mean, what, what is extraterrestrial? I mean, it means something that's not of this earth, and I think that somebody who has done both um, psilocybin and LSD, um, I, I feel like there are spiritual dimensions around us that are, you know, I, I believe as, as a, as a pagan, I believe in the land spirits, like the Jotuns, the Jotnar, like the, we, we hear that in the lore, like dwarves and, and elves and all these, all these different creatures. I know other, other cultures are like gnomes and fairies and, and things like that, but I almost feel like that's kind of like a, a spiritual layer that's, that's connected to different places on the earth that we can't really see with the naked eye, but with mind-expanding compounds, we're able to kind of glimpse into these different realms and different areas. What's interesting more specifically to your point, I was, my mind was blown to realize this, um, based on what I had seen on my trip, without any context about this, other than just like, you know, watching the Marvel movies and everything, um, I, I learned later on of this, um, you know, the, this Greek myth of Hyperborea, um, which, which essentially talks of an ancient homeland, um, uh, like like an origin place, a cradle of civilization, not not necessarily the one in sub-Saharan South Africa, but where uh, the North Pole is now. There is there is speculation that at one time that could have been covered by greenery, and it could have actually been rather tropical before the Ice Age, like way, way back in Earth's history. And um, there are people that speculate that there was some sort of society there. And from that place, there was a, a migration of people down into Europe and, and across the Arctic Circle. Of course, there's not necessarily a lot of archaeological evidence for that. 
I, you know, take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt, but based on my experience and based on the strangeness of these things like, like Nazca lines uh, down in South America, like the pyramids, like, in fact, my own home state of Ohio, there's this thing called the Serpent Mound, which is like, yeah. this, like giant burial mound by Native Americans. It's a serpent eating an egg, which is a very, like, ancient spiritual concept, like the world, the cosmic serpent, you know, and the egg of life, like the egg of creation. And it's, like, perfectly lined up with the equinoxes. So I personally, like, what I saw, I, I think what I saw was was maybe something that wasn't really there, but it was something that was deep in my past. And I believe that there really isn't necessarily time. Time is something that we have devised to to regulate our days and to chronicle our history. But I believe that, you know, the created order of things is essentially like the serpent eating its tail, the Oribus, you know, Jormungandr. It's, it's, this, it's this cycle. And if you look at, like, orthodoxies like this, for example, or, or like, more desert religions. There's Eastern religions. It's not so much based on like a linear A, point A to point B, but things are very like cyclical. Things are very seasonal. And you definitely see that within paganism as well. So I felt like somehow I was able to see spiritually back to, you know, generations and generations upon generations into my past. And it felt like it was this clarifying moment where this is my place in cosmic history. And this is where I need to plant my flag. And this is where I need to develop my faith, and it is esoteric, and I don't really talk about this stuff ever, but because you brought it up, like, I, I, I'll, I'll entertain that thought. So, yeah, that, that's kind of that's kind of a little bit of my thoughts on that on that whole scenario. Yeah, you know, there's 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 a lot at play, man. And, you know, this is... When, when I speak with, you know, a lot of really... In, like, I don't want to... There's, there's, there's so many, like cliches and stereotypes you have to sort of dance around to, to, to make sure that you're being precise in speech. When I say enlightened, I mean people who who really are seeking some form of spiritual enlightenment, who are walking the path and they're open-minded, but they have their feet on the ground at the same time, so they're not being led astray or putting themselves through some head trips, you know? Um, yeah. When I meet these people across faith, you know, Zoroastrian people, um, Muslims, um, some people who, you know, a lot of people would classify and new age, but they're too on the level and too logical and too rooted and too enlightened, really, to be called new age. Um, you know, I speak to a lot of these people, and we start start dissecting a lot of things at play. There, 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 there's, there's a lot to dissect. It's not as simple as what a lot of people who just want to sort of stay in their, their, in their box, their comfort zone within their faith you know, mm. want to address. Now, if your faith is young and you're, you're trying to tread carefully, hey, that's, that's, I, 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 sure. and I, I've mentioned this before when I had a podcast with Zenobial because we got into some interesting stuff about sort of cyclical versus linear. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to knock anyone off their path. Like, if this is your path to walk alone, you are where you, where you're at, where you're at, and you need to keep going from where you're at, not from where I'm at, not from where any of these, content creators like ourselves are at um so but there is there is a lot of place so you have things like just just to throw out some things you have you have pyramids in various parts of the world you have mm-hmm. a lot of evidence for a completely different hunter-gatherer shamanistic civilization pre-ice age you have yeah you, know, you even have plato talking about you know borea and hyper uh hyper, hyperborea or hyperborea um the land beyond the north wind yep that's what that means Greek. yeah 
Yeah, you know, he's to speaking speaking about these people like you know the real people, just like he spoke about Atlantis. Like, oh, we're about to go to war with Atlantis, but Atlantis is going to war with Hyperborea. So it's like interesting. Okay, so you have that. Uh, Graham Hancock's recent work about two years ago discussing how the Egyptians and the what they're finding. So there, there were evidently there were a lot of Spanish and Portuguese explorers were discussing how the Amazon had like fifty cities the size of Seville within it. Wow. And then, like, yeah, yeah, which is a massive statement. And 50 years later, you know, explorers went there and found nothing. They're like, oh, they're just telling tall tales. But now that, you know, for better or for worse, the Amazon's being infringed upon, they're starting to, they, they're, they're stopping this sort of soybean farm revolution that's going down in Brazil because they're finding the evidence of these 50 mm-hmm. cities that were there. And as they di- dive deeper into translating um, what they're finding in certain languages and symbols, um, that are that are the same as um, some of the symbols in Egypt is that they that they're either a complete coincidence by having the same belief system, or that they have the same inherited ancestor. And obviously, the second is far more likely. Um, then you have you well, know, you, uh, I just was going to say like you, you piggyback that. Oh man, that's so cool you're into this kind of stuff because <laughs> I love this kind of thing. Like uh, you piggyback that with this idea that okay, so. Paganism is is a branch of an older faith, right? Like like Germanic Norse paganism, Anglo-Saxon paganism. It all goes back to Proto-Germanic, which goes back to Proto-Indo-European faith, which was the 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 wellspring for a Slavic faith. The wellspring for it was in the Pontic Caspian steppe, which was close to um, like modern Ukraine, but but like ideas that disseminated down into India, that went into Iran, that went to Greece and Rome, for example. I'm sure you know this, but in case the audience doesn't, the um, the name of the Sky Father, which was the Son, was the representative representative of, was Dios Fater, right? And Dios, of course, is where we get the word um, Dio or Dios, which means God in Latin. And um, so you have Zeus, which is this like um, like like evolution of that word within the Hellenistic culture. So Dios Fater becomes Zeus. The father, the, the father of the pantheon, and then you also have Jupiter, which is the Latin Roman equivalent of Dios Fater becomes Jupiter, which is you know the the sky god in in that pantheon, and that also correlates to Tiawaz, um, which ends up being the god Tyr in the Norse pantheon, and there's also a similar name I can't remember off the top of my head within Hindu um, faith systems as well, so. Even if you're just thinking about it from a, 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 an observable history where we have documentation, you can trace this history lineage and this faith lineage back to the specific point. But I think that there is a point where most traditions were disseminated orally instead of written. Um, I think the idea of language itself is an incredible spiritual technology that, that probably came from somewhere beyond just a primate, you know, this idea of a primate evolving to come up with language. There has to be some other sort of a synthesis with something greater to, to even come up with a written language um, to begin with. But he traced these threads back from the Proto-Indo-European Bronze Age culture. Like, where did these ideas come from beyond that? There had to be something else. That was an echo of something greater, of a greater cacophony from a more previous era. And that was probably an echo from something that happened beyond that as well, too. So it's foolishness for us to say that man just invented this stuff in the Bronze Age or whatever. Like, no, this is... This is like a fire that's been passed down. 
And as it passed down, it goes from torch to torch, and it burns differently on each torch. But if you follow those torches back, there's this like this initial like you know ex nihilo moment where where this comes into into our consciousness. So yeah. No, okay, so I'm, I'm very I'm very glad you took the reins on that because one of my one of my questions was sort of like um, you know grander sort of like precursor origins of paganism. So I'm glad you mm. sort of sort of gave me that piece of the puzzle because that's a piece of the puzzle that I don't have in sort of my research and my walk of trying to understand for the past four years. I've really tried to begin to understand divinity um, and the origins of humanity for the past four years since joining the Orthodox Church. I joined the Orthodox Church in March of 17. Um, hmm. And, um, yeah, so it, one of the first steps with that for me was, and that this was independent of me joining a Russian Orthodox cathedral in San Francisco, um, was... I'm spilling the beans and where I'm at. I gotta be careful. Um, <laughs> San Francisco, Texas, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll edit that part out. But when, so when I first came to um, when I when I first came to the Orthodox Church, uh, independently of that, I started researching the Book of Enoch, and the Book of Enoch mm. um, is a very fascinating book. You know about the Nephilim and the fallen angels and the fall of man. Um, and the only the only church in the world I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but just to just to add this to the conversation as well, the only church in the world that considers the Book of Enoch to be biblical canon is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is the longest continuously running church. It's never been invaded. There's never been a Reformation. There's never been a papacy. Um, so I was like, okay, that's interesting. Well, the, <laughs> everyone else that's been around long, been around less. For you know, for a shorter period of time, is saying it's not, and the one that's been around the longest saying it is. So, that says a lot. Um, so that was that, that. sort of got the ball rolling for me with a lot of these practices that, and I, I'm sort of going all over the place, but to essentially gather everything, um, in the sense that okay, it's, it seems to me that okay, so I, I believe what I believe as a Christian that you know, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know, died for our sins. Um, it's essentially the Nicene Creed, um, for the, for the most part. Although I'm doing I'm doing a lot of research in terms of afterlife, that there's there's a lot of evidence covered up about reincarnation in the early church. That actually, I'm releasing. We're recording this today, but I'm releasing that podcast. Um, I'm releasing some seeds of that of that of that information in a podcast being released later today, episode 19. Um, but. I, I, I believe all of that, and I, I do believe the wholeheartedly. That's that's in my heart. Love of Jesus Christ, the love of God. But I, 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 I it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that a lot of what's going on in the spiritual world is completely separate from that. Like I see them as one and the same. Mm -hmm. Because Great. you know, like take take for example uh, the Book of Enoch. So they talk about how. You know, they, they talk about, you know, astrology being, you know, heresy and things like that. You know, true astrology, not, you know, get your astrological update of your love life on your phone back in 2005 with a text message kind of astrology. I mean, real astrology and numerology and things like that. In the Book of Enoch, the fallen angels, oh shit, he's holding up a, so I'm, I'm a video <laughs> chat with him. He has a cosmic creation of the galaxy and solar systems book by Casey DeClaire. What's that author? Uh, uh, June Wakefield. This was somebody who was a branched off of the American Astrologer Association, which had connections with the Theosophical Society. An incredibly hard book to find, but I found it. This book, if you can get your hands on it, will blow your mind. So anyways, that's just an aside. 
Okay, you 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 and I are gonna have to talk about it after because apparently we have yeah. we have like a good twelve different roads to go down in terms of speaking on <laughs> subjects. Yeah. Um, common areas sure. of interest and in research. Um, but you know, so it's like for me, I, I think our origins are a lot more complicated than people want to say. You know, and I think you know when you take a look at the Bible too. I mean, first of all, the, the compilation of the Bible happened four hundred years after the time of Christ, so. The book selected, they're, they're, this, the jury's still out for me, so I try to do more and more research with things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other books and try to evaluate what was inspired and what, what, what wasn't. That's, that takes prayer and that takes research and that takes time. But uh, in terms of origins, like I don't, I don't think, I, I think there, there are a lot of different origins at hand with what has become humanity. And I, I, I think there, there is the potential for a lot of like advanced beings, like be, beings of, of higher, that have advanced in consciousness, of higher intelligence, of higher understanding, that have developed greater morals because they understand that, you know, bloodlust is, is ultimately fruitless, you know what I mean? Um, and it's, it, there, there's a lot of working theories with the Norse pagan faith around these some people I don't want to call them the ancient Aryans because that's what a lot of like weird like Nazi yeah accounts are like and that's where we could get like we could be misconstrued for something we're not like there are a lot of weird white supremacist accounts running around that like thought I was one of them they actually used my art in one of their posts and I was like take my fucking logo down like do not that's do not oh bullshit yeah do not put my logo with the, with the hashtag Nazism and like yeah, yeah it's just horrendous so. I don't want to. I don't want. I want to make sure that that's abundantly clear. But people mm -hmm. have called them the ancient Aryans, but it seems like there's, there's. I, I think there's more than just one um, precursor race and precursor. Maybe high, like advanced beings, not necessarily deities, but advanced beings, which would be the Christian standpoint or a Norse pagan standpoint, become you know Norse gods. Um, I know, I know, yep. I know a couple. I know a couple of Norse pagans who they're they're the god they're closest to right now is Tyr. Um, and so I, I think, I think there, there's, there's, there's a lot of room to understand what it is that going on. Like, why does Iceland, why do 80% of the Icelandic population believe in mythical creatures? Like, that's not, that's not some weird quirky thing. Like that's, there's something real there. So, so uh, what, let, let me, um, yeah, go ahead. Let, let me, let me unpack that a little bit, actually. That's before I forget this point. So there is in the Volus, Voluspa, which is kind of like our, Norse pagan creation account, and again, I have to always throw out the disclaimer that the the poetic Edda and the prose Edda, which are, are really like our holy texts, along with the Havama, uh, and several other sagas as well, um, like Saga of the Volsungs, um, they were written in Iceland um, in the 11th century by Snorri Sturluson, who himself was a Christian. So um, he essentially, we, there was a, a tradition of skaldic poetry in within the Norse context, and these stories would be transmitted from one generation to another orally, like as, as it was with, for example, in, in, um, in Judaism, like before that was written down, like those stories were passed down, like the Pentateuch, all the stories of Moses was, was written after the fact, I, I, I believe at least, I, those stories were, were passed down orally for a long period of time. And it was the same way with the Norse tradition as well. But that disclaimer being said, there is a story of, the primal giant, which is Ymir. So, you have Ymir, and he's he's this, this Jotnar, he's this giant. And um, Odin and his two brothers, Vili and Bey, essentially kill him, and they create the entire world out of his body. So there's this idea 
that, you know, all that is living comes from the death of this one being. But what's interesting is that Odin, including the gods as well, um, except for Odin, Billy, and Bay, who come from the outside, and they're able to, you could even use the word terraform, this, this, this Jotnar, and create all life that exists on the earth today. Like they would say, like, the, you know, the, his eyelashes became the mountains, or his bones became the mountains, eyelashes were the trees, or probably messing that up but like this just this like really interesting analogy so i think that there is this and even in, in the the christian account you have this idea of this of, of yahweh or elohim to be more specific which if you look at what that means it's, it's actually a plural like i think god said let us make man in our image it's this idea that there's there's more than maybe just one one specific uh, engineer or architect, let's use those terms, from somewhere else that has created this thing. Um, and, and, I, and I always think, too, when it comes to faith, that I'm a big fan of Pink Floyd, because, you know, I've done psychedelics. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon, like, if, if you look at the cover of Dark Side of the Moon, like, you have this, like, image of, like, this prism and this light screen, this prism, casting a rainbow of different colors. And so, I, I've always kind of thought that if you work back whatever color faith path you're on back to the prism, which is revelation, you're going to get the same source of, or sources that hit that, that, that prism and cast a different shade of colors based on region, based on culture, based on the lived experience of the people that it was revealed to. I believe all these great prophets from like Moses or, or Jesus or, um, you know, whatever Buddha or Krishna or Odin on, you know, when he was sacrificing himself to himself on Yggdrasil, they are people that have had this sort of, I'm not going to say it's a psychedelic experience, but this like transcendental, revelatory, mystical experience that has kind of clued them into the greater scheme at large. And then they filtered that through their culture and the text and literature of that culture. And that's given it that specific color. That, but the problem is, is that on Earth, people end up worshipping the color that they forget about the prism and the light that hits the prism that starts the color anyway. They're worshipping that color, and they are correct. That color is the light, but it's just one um, strain or variant of that light, um, and there are other ones as well. That, so that's how me as a polytheist can reconcile respect for other religions and other faiths, because I see them as just a different coloration of that same light, um, you know, so for what that's worth. No, that see that makes that makes a lot of sense, man. That makes that makes a whole lot of sense because, in my mind, there are a lot of parallels. Um, you know, they're actually um, I, I mentioned Zenobia a lot because he's bringing something to this sphere that not a lot of people. I, I would I would dare say that not a lot of people or no one, rather, is really touching upon and creating content, um, and that's systems of magic. He did a podcast mm. on his podcast on YouTube, uh, episode 16 of his podcast, about systems of magic, you know, sigil magic, and how he, he's, he's Catholic. Um, but that, you know, the asking saints to pray for you, and, you know, certain rituals of Catholicism that are indeed, you know, Christian magic, really, ultimately. Like, they're systems of magic. And... There are a lot of parallels to that. Like, I've, I've briefly studied, you know, I studied some of your, your posts about the rune system, and I've tried to better understand the rune system. And if, if you, and I'm drawing some parallels, you know, between orthodoxy and, 
and um, Norse paganism is like there's 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 heavy emphasis on ritual. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of, a lot of people a lot of people when they first went to Orthodoxy, myself included, like were really like all right, it's about the Bible, and they're like, oh, it's not really completely about the Bible. It's like more no. about the divine liturgy. Um, it is, and the divine liturgy in it is is a ritual that prepares one for the priest to go behind the echinostasis and and literally transliterate the, the the sacrament into the actual body and blood of Christ, you know, which is which is a magical ritual. I mean there's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. The entire thing is like a psychological preparation for those who are going to receive the sacrament to get into the right headspace so they can receive it and for the priest to be able to to conjure up that power and imbue these physical elements with this spiritual sustenance and then pass that to the congregation. So absolutely, man, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, we're, we're, we're dealing in systems of magic. There's so, there's so many parallels. I mean, people, people aren't really good at this. Um, but, okay, so, because yeah, I, I, I had so many questions after a year. Okay, so, on a side note, <laughs> I listen, I have so many questions for you now, but uh, so, on a, on a side note, when I listened to your podcast with Forrest, I had something amazing happen as I was walking home and listening to it. And the same thing with your podcast, Will Spencer, with Renaissance of Men. So, ever since I've listened... <laughs> but I, I should say beforehand, too, because the law of attraction of the subconscious is real, but mm. I've had two crows sort of follow me around everywhere. Mm. There's been two crows everywhere. My mother said the same thing, and Devin Madrano, the guy who runs Nature Field, said the same thing. And so, okay, on a side note before I keep going towards Magical system, what is up with the crows, man? Like, I'm, I'm, it's driving me nuts. Like, what's going on? <laughs> sure, I have an answer for that, actually. And I, I think this actually kind of, there's a nice synchronicity. So, Odin um, is, okay, what's really cool about Odin is that he is two things. And, and okay, so for, I'm going to, I want to talk about um, Jack Donovan's new book, Fire in the Dark, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Jack and I have kind of become sort of friends over the last year. I've done some design work for him, and uh, he's been on my podcast, and um, and he, I think he really understands these concepts in a really powerful way that kind of does get to the heart of these things behind um, these different religious mindsets. Like, like He refers to faith as a spiritual technology that's meant to enact actual lasting change on, on Earth. And so he talks about Odin as being um, king in the, in, the, in the light and king in the darkness. So obviously, according to the lore, Norse lore, Odin sits atop this high tower, or sits atop this high throne. It's the highest throne on this peak. And from that throne, he can, he, it's a shining throne, and he can see everything that happens in, in, you know, in Asgard. And, and, and the other realms and things like that. Like he has that place of like kingly authority, and it, it really is kind of like this whole like solar concept. Like he is like the sun, the highest the highest point shining overall. But Odin is also the king in darkness, and he has two ravens. Um, and ravens and crows are obviously uh, they're they're related to each other. Ravens aren't as common in the Americas as they would be in like say Scandinavia. But crows, I think, are very similar to them, and, and they're, they're both scavenger birds. And so Odin would send out his two ravens, Hugin and Munin, which is translated from Old Norse into thought and memory. He would send them throughout the Nine Realms, and they would report to him information about things that were happening. So uh, Earth in the Norse cosmology is called Midgard, or Midgard. 
And there's like Alfheim, there's Helheim, which is, you know, our hell, which is like the land of the dead. Not the same as, as that's where the Christians get the word hell, but it's a different different connotation. There's obviously Asgard, there's Muspelheim, Niflheim, all these different forms. And Odin will send his ravens to gather information to report back to him what's going on in the world. So when you think about it from like this consciousness and law of attraction perspective, I believe that Odin, whatever Odin is, is active um, in all the realms. And I think he brings people together to achieve whatever he is trying to do. I don't think that he, as opposed to Yahweh, who the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I feel like Odin is always evolving in knowledge. He's a very esoteric person, and I, I think he, or God, and he's trying to gather as much information as possible. So, if you're listening to me talking to Will or to Forrest about these concepts, and you're also interested in these same things, it makes total sense that perhaps he would send you a sign, like, hey, I'm threading you together, I'm bringing you into this orbit, because maybe there's a synchronicity with what you know, and what, you know, Oaks and O's knows, or what, uh, Backbuilders knows, or Renaissance Men knows, because there is a mission that needs to happen at this specific time on Midgard, and Odin knows that he's bringing people together to make that happen. So that's how I read a situation like that. Interesting. Okay. Got it. So this is... So, is it general rule you say ravens are sort of like a sign of synchronicity, like from Odin, or...? I think they're a sign that Odin is watching you or trying to communicate with you in some way and usually when he does so it's usually a hard and painful thing because he, he seems to like to challenge you to see what you're made of <laughs> he's not he's not the kindest god out there um and i've had this one ex one personal experience with him where i've actually encountered him like actually encountered him just once it was terrifying but it was incredibly powerful but i think to me that's a sign that that the person who sees that sign is seeking after knowledge and or has knowledge that Odin wants to know about himself. Because Odin is not omniscient. That's the one thing about our gods. They're not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. They are, they're in specific places at different times. They can't be all over the place. So that's why I believe Odin sends out his ravens to try to gather this information for him, kind of like spies or, you know, whatever, like people that are like couriers that are, that are finding out what's going on in the battle lines. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay, that's very, very interesting because, yeah, two people, I mean, I'm, I've grown pretty close with Devin Medrano, uh, man behind Nature Pill, and uh, actually behind a couple other Instagram accounts, but he's trying to be secretive about that. Um, and, uh, you know, my mother, they've, they've, they've been encountering a pair, a pair of crows, and actually we had a, I think we had a raven fly overhead once hmm. like, in a drive to more, like, remote part of the area. I was like, okay, that was too big to be a crow. Um, so that was that was pretty, that was pretty funny. That was it. Um, so yeah, that was. So I, I'm curious as to I mean I'm going through a lot of hardship right not not hardship right now but trial rather right now so that makes a lot of sense. Sounds about right. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean and, and right now I'm in Lent. You know all the, all the Catholics and Protestants celebrate Easter, but our Easter is May first, and you know it's uh <laughs> May May first and oh, come, come on, man! It's, it's not it's not Easter, man! It's Pascha. Come on, right? <laughs> okay, so you, yeah, you know, you know, it's Pascha. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Christ I mean, has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Oh, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> oh, man, you have been there. 
So you, yeah. you, 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 you've had the candle and waited outside the gates for them to yell, yep. Christ is risen. Um, yep. It's, it's an amazing it was the long, It was so long, but it was so cool. Like, yeah, that was... Five that was, hours! <laughs> I read it. It's a fucking marathon, man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the most... It's, it's, it's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever been, been a part of. It, 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 it told me the most about myself. It, gave, it had me write the poem Blood and Rain. It very clearly said what my life is about in a couple of flashes of my entire life before my eyes, and then some flashes beyond. It's it was it was amazing. Um, so then the, the 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 other thing. So I believe okay, it's a lot of interesting questions. So there's which which one do I want to go down? So I guess the the other the other interesting synchronicity I had. So while I was walking home again, listening to your podcast with Will Spencer, you sort of went on, I don't want to call it a rant, but you wanted, you had like this surge of energy speaking about like the hero's journey. Uh, and I, as you were doing that, like a bunch of license plates drove by with like specific numbers of dates that were like very sick, that I remember was like very significant to my life regarding my cycles of the hero's journey. I was like, whoa. Was like, that, was, that was beyond, that was beyond spooky basically. Um, so that's another Another tangent side note, but um, in in so in the realm of what, what's what's interesting to me when you're saying about Odin not being sort of om- omnipotent, um, and you you mentioned this sort of like Odin and his brothers came from like elsewhere. Like, is there any any inkling in Norse pagan faith as to what that elsewhere is, um, or is it not discussed much? That's interesting. So I get, I guess like the. So the real origin story is that you had what was called Gananga Gap, which was like this like this expanse, this this gap. Gananga Gap means like like enormous gap or something like that. This void essentially. Imagine a void, and you and it was formed between uh, Muspelheim and Niflheim. So you have like extreme heat and extreme cold, like these extreme polarities um, in, in terms of alchemical or or cosmological forces. And that's what that's what formed um, what became became what we would call. Uh, man, I, I have I have the put it kind of right in front of me. But I, I feel like it'd be awkward to kind of thumb through that. I, I think as in it, the poem itself, the creation story is not like super in depth or that long. Um, but I think that Odin just kind of comes into the story along with his brothers, slays the primordial giant. So it's almost like he came from somewhere else, but it's not specified where that is necessarily. I, I speculated that perhaps he is in... I don't know if I want to use the word extraterrestrial, maybe extra-dimensional um, entity or, or personality that um, is very interested in what is happening on Midgard. Because... I think his path is his path is hard because life is hard, and so if you look at Norse myth, like you hear like a lot of people talk about Valhalla, like you know, like oh man, I, I uh, yeah, like I, I I pulled a splitter out of my finger, I'm going to Valhalla, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like people always talk about it, <laughs> and like and like Valhalla is like is like Odin's hall, and it's very. It's very like special, and the only people that can go to it are those who die honorably in combat. And if if that person, if Odin sees that a, a person who dies honorably in combat, he'll send a Valkyrie to essentially transport that dead 
that dead soul, that dead spirit to Valhalla or Valhalla. Valhalla is the correct term in Old Norse. Um, Valhalla is the common, you know, romanticized 19th century uh, vernacular that we're all used to today. But yeah. so there's this idea that, that he is looking for a certain sort of moral excellence of personal honor and integrity and I think spiritual acumen and acuity um, to bring this person back. And what I find really interesting when we talk about concepts like, say, reincarnation, how Valhalla is described is these, these men will go there, or these warriors will go there, and they will spend all day fighting, or they'll spend all night feasting and drinking, get up the next day, fight, they'll all die, and then they'll be reincarnated to do it again day after day after day. Which, to me, it almost seems like, this is, of course, my speculation based off of my exegesis of the text. But I almost feel like there's that's an analogy for, to the man who is truly honorable, truly solar, truly um, pursuing spiritual things, lives an exemplary life, he goes on to continue to be that thing, to be that example um, in a spiritual sense. Because um, when you think about what really makes a man a man, what makes a man function, it's this idea of being united in a common struggle. It's this idea of, of a fellowship, a fraternity with other men, with other people, that, that he also honors and esteems. And you think about Mahal, it's like all these warriors that have the same code together, feasting together, drinking together, partying together, enjoying, enjoying this experience of being together. And the greatest enemy of the common man today is loneliness and isolation. We see that a lot with um, everything going on. And so I think that to the man that is able to achieve that sort of spiritual perfection and moral excellence, then spiritually speaking, that is his reward to continue to, to struggle and to continue to be knocked down and yet rise up again with more knowledge and then to fight again and then, and then to, to celebrate and then continually over and over. And a day in Valhalla could be a thousand years. You never know. I mean, time as we understand it is a very human concept, but even the Bible says that a day is a thousand years to God. So perhaps this is like an era in time, maybe a million year era in time with these spiritual warriors who are just able to, to join Odin in his quest to continue to call up men, mortal men on Midgard, to become spiritually perfect, spiritually excellent, to kind of uh, reach a state, status of, um, of um, you know, uh, theosis almost within a, a pagan sense and to be able to be an example for other men to do the same thing. That's that's kind of where I'm leaning at with my understanding of that. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, we're going, we're going deep, dude. This is great. Damn. <laughs> wow. Okay. That, okay, Jesus. All right, so in terms of the hero's journey, like... Okay, so I'm facing, you know, different challenges being an engaged man now. But uh, I, I, I don't know if he knows about my background. My listeners know this full well, so sorry if I'm repeating this, guys. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, I went through a four-year celibate by choice period that was, like, is very near and dear to my heart because I grew the most. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's actually lines up at the time that I came to orthodoxy. And I found that, like, the struggles were getting harder and harder and harder and harder, especially my pursuit was to be a professional fighter. And they just like, got more and more and more and more fulfilling. It's like that's the, the, the path. Like this path of pain. Like being, in my, in my mind, like there's a lot of... I don't want to call it the path of pain because I don't think it's just mm. about pain. But it is, that is a big part of it, you t- taking the pain 
Um, and that's that's the path of like I think of true Orthodox Christianity, and it sounds like it's, it's the the true path of, of North Pagan faith as it stands. It's like sort of what you're saying, like you're understanding whatever cycle this is for, because it seems to be the, there seems to be like cycles within cycles within cycles within cycles. Like we have a hero, every man, if you're truly living as a man, um, you're on the hero, you're in cycles of the hero's journey every day. And if you're if you don't feel like that, you're just in this void of nothingness. You're in this sort of isolation, like you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. You're saying you're you're basically staying in this personal masculine hell on earth. Um, mm-hmm. So then you have that cycle. Then what you, you sort of like alluded to makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like if Odin's this very powerful being, right? And he, it's it's funny. Um, Forrest and I talked about this. Him and I we both played RuneScape back in the day, like to be complete, oh, yeah. complete nerds. And they, hey, Odin, Mr. I, man, no shame in the game, bro. No shame in the game. <laughs> oh yeah, man, that was. It took a lot of time, though, man. Like, I was late to soccer practice. I was like, they were like, why are you late? I'm like, uh, don't work. <laughs> so that, that was that was a source of, you know, inaction for things I was supposed to be doing. But what really interested me about RuneScape was, was a lot of the mythology that they created behind it. There was a lot of Norse. I mean, they, they used the mythology from a bunch of cultures to compilate mm-hmm. sort of uh, mythos that they created with, um, with RuneScape. But it seems to me that there's, like, Cycles within cycles within cycles within cycles within cycles within cycles of humanity. It seems seems to me that your understanding of like the origins of Odin and his brothers, they seem to be on their own like million year cycle within this ultimate cycle of time. Mm-hmm. Time, like you said, like and that's that's I, I'm very wary of the concept of linear time because you know to to touch upon briefly like someone someone of like a new age belief of like the the something that I kind of believe in and I want to say kind of because I believe in the logic behind it but not necessarily the way they're going about it is that the earth's consciousness consciousness is rising um, as a whole um, so they call that the transition to fifth dimension with the fourth dimension of time so it's like when we we have a three dimensional viewpoint of time we don't really know what time it is so the way we chronicle time is from a very three-dimensional standpoint as opposed to like a higher dimensional standpoint that it seems like um o- odin you know is, is someone who's like a higher dimensional being like what you're saying is that is that makes does it make sense sort of like he's 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 part of yeah. cycles and cycles and cycles of existence but he has a he's a pretty strong dominion over some yeah okay so <laughs> yeah so to kind of unpack that a little bit more um odin is also the conjurer of the runes as well. And so I, I think Odin himself is kind of a father figure and an example figure. For example, he, according to the lore, he sacrificed himself to himself on a tree, pierced the side of the spear, which kind of sounds like Jesus a little bit in a weird way. And um, in doing so, he gave up his eye, material eye, so that he would be able to have spiritual sight, and then he put his eye in the well of the mirror, which is below the, the tree that he was on, the world tree Yggdrasil. And it, when he did that, he saw, looked down, and he saw the runes amongst the sticks. So he saw this, like, spiritual language in this material world, and the runes themselves, and I, I think I talk about this in my rune study, and I, on my podcast, I'm kind of diving deeper into it. The runes are magical. They're, they're a technological system because they... They literally write out words, but they also deal with cosmological concepts, and they're almost like channels to these different, as I see it, different energies within the multiverse. And so, when a person 
is able to truly understand a rune and what it, and what it means. And, and like you could do sigils with runes as well. I, I've done so myself, of course, very cautiously because I, I respect runes and believe they're very powerful. Let me give you an example, actually, an actual tangible example of this. Uh, and this is one of those things that I know that this faith is, is correct for me and that I, I'm on the right path. So it's funny you're talking about your, your celibacy thing, too. I, I took an oath for a year um, to... Like, I'm married and everything, um, but like, like, guys, I struggle. I, I, I've had addiction. And that was something... And this is the first time I've actually shared this publicly, but I feel like it's important because um, I think it's an important message to get out. It's something that I wanted out of my life. And so my brother um, from, from my, my kindred up in Columbus, um, I was drunk on Yule of uh, <laughs> 2019. And I said, man, like, I really want to do this. And I'm like, I want to swear an oath. He looked at me. He's like, if you fail, he's like, we'll never talk to you again. Like, and, and there will be physical consequences of, of like, violence against you if you fail. Because you're swearing this oath before, you're swearing this oath before your brother's and we're going to hold you to it, and you're weird, which is kind of karma, like the, the pagan kind of concept of karma. Your, your weird is connected with ours, and if you dishonor yourself, and you also dishonor us, we cannot allow our reputation to be dishonored. And, you know, in Christianity, I always had these quote-unquote accountability groups of guys that would check in on you to see if you were keeping oh, your eyes you know, oh, clear or whatever. You know, yeah, I know it's cringe, but it never worked because there was never any consequences. But there was a consequence here. A very real consequence. And if I knew that if I failed, I would be, uh, you know, I'd be like dis, dis, disallowed to, to fellowship with them. And I'd also get my ass kicked. And those guys were, were they're pretty much badass motherfuckers. Like, the, like one dude was a power lifter. The other dude worked in a prison and uh, knows like every martial art in the book. And I can't take them all at once. So I was a strong motivator. So all that to say that I did successfully complete my own. And as a result, um, I was going, one thing I've wanted to do for the last couple of years, is I hit my mid, I'm 33, just about 33, I've always wanted to be a dad. And all last year, while my oath was still ongoing, we, we were trying to conceive and it wasn't happening. And it was discouraging for me. And so I went to this Yule gathering last year um, at Yule, like right before the solstice. And there was this guy there who I only met once, and he came up to me and he said, Hey man, I really felt like the gods wanted me to give you this rune in particular. I carved it on this on this piece of wood. I felt like you needed to have it. And the rune that he gave me was an Ingloz rune. And um, Ingloz is the rune of male fertility. It's the it's like the progenitive, like masculine energy that brings forth life within the earth. A, a rune of like natural growth and fertility. And it just kind of, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a pretty stoic dude, but it kind of drove me to tears because I, I've been questioning my own fertility. And I'm like, you know, I've been honoring this oath, all this stuff, nothing has happened. He gave me this rune, and it just really was an emotional moment. I'm like, dude, I'm like, I've been really wanting to be a dad, and I, I just don't, I don't know if that's, that's going to happen. And he's like, well, he was a dad with two kids. He's like, man, he's like, the gods will do what they're going to do in their time. I didn't know that you wanted that. He's like, I just felt like I didn't give you this rune. So... I get back from Yule, and on the solstice, um, my wife takes a pregnancy test, and we find out that we're expecting. And uh, we're about halfway through the pregnancy right now. And and that and that day, solstice was a year to the day that I I took that year long oath. 
So I completed that oath a couple days beforehand. I was given this rune, which is this cosmological um, information, this like this channel into this idea of fertility. And then I find out that I'm going to be a father. And dude, I mean, you talk about something that just to this day gives me goosebumps and maybe makes me a little teary eyed right now. It's like, that's the power of this stuff. And we live in a world where people deny that there is spiritual technology that influences our lives, that aligns our energies with these greater energies, these greater vibrations. And we're, we, and we're just like, you know, wanking it to Pornhub and like playing video games and getting stoned all the time. When we could be engaging in this thing that's for our benefit, that can not only increase our lives and help us manifest what we need in our lives, but also be an encouragement to other folks too. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a, 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 a personal anecdote about the power of the runes in my own life and uh, why I put so much credence into them. Wow. wow, wow, that's, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that, I really appreciate that. Sure. Thank you, thank you. Um, that's an amazing story. I mean, I mean, to the day, I mean, this, you know, some, some pencil neck dumb fuck atheist out there is going to be like, whoa, like this, science, you know, lends itself to, to you know, coincidences every night, like, I teach to stop. Yep. Stop. Like, just stop. There are certain things that, you know, viscerally are undeniable, and that is one of them. It's like what I experienced on Pascha, what you experienced, you know, two solstices in a row, what many of us have experienced with the Great Conjunction on the most recent, you, on the most recent solstice of us all finding each other at once. It's, it's very interesting. Mm. To deny that, to say that's... It, it becomes illogical to deny that, honestly. I was given... Um, this 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 is something I, I can't fully disclose, but I I'll, I'll, I'll first disclose it here. The only it wasn't the only the only thing that sorry the poem Blood and Rain wasn't the only thing that I, I received on Posca in 2018. The other thing uh, had to do um, which was something that was very unlikely of a window that I thought had closed and. Like you, it's like the window opened back up, and it was like. But also said like the window was never really closed. You were just sort of like blinded. It's like you you had something hindering something as opposed to it being permanent. Um, and I th I was like whoa, and I just like I didn't listen to that part, um, and so I just sort of discarded that. And three days later. I had like a sort of update from the ether about this this thing that I thought was closed, and then it became an appointment. I was like, okay, now it's literally illogical for me to think that this is all a coincidence. I know viscerally, wholeheartedly, that this is not a coincidence. They're very, I don't, I don't personally, I don't think there are any coincidences, you know. No. Um, but when and when I say that, there's a caveat to that, guys. When, when when I say coincidence, I think a lot of people think that there's no coincidence in the literal sense. Sometimes. There are no coincidences in the context of a spiritual sense. It's just like it's not the literal connotation of what you of this non-coincidence is. It's the spiritual connotation, um, the spiritual meaning behind it. So that, that the, what, what you're saying with with the runes, and what you're saying with your oaths, um, it, it's part of a bigger overarching question that I have about your personal journey with North paganism because. Like yourself, I was in the evangelical church. I met a lot of people who really didn't mean what they said. Um, I met a lot of people who didn't mean what they said, right? Um, but I, I noticed it was, like, very American before it was Christian, and I found it, like, very sanitizing. 
Um, and I, I saw these missions trips where they're going to Mexico for like a week and helping build the school, and then they take some pictures for Instagram and then they go home. It's just like, is that really? It's like you're you're sort of paying for a vacation, where it's like you're kind of doing charity, you're kind of feeling good. It's like somewhat temporary. It's like the long-term missions guys, like the guys who are out there for like two years, like building wells for people. Like that's a different story. You know what I mean? That's that's that I can get behind. But this sort of coming to a culture and saying like you know your culture is satanic like this is the one culture that isn't satanic the one culture that's like hmm, interesting so when i when i started to really question actually this this part i can't share um i was dating a girl in the evangelical church right and you know i i really so actually this was uh this is a relationship i had that was fully celibate because it's fully through the church so um we, we, we full full disclosure, guys. We like hardly even kissed, to be honest, which was a mindfuck in, in, in hindsight. Or I know exactly that's like, bro. I've been there too. In the evangelical church, yeah, yeah. It was funny. I, I had a, I had a, I had a guy drive me home. Uh, uh, an old. He was getting to know me. Him and I became like very close friends, and still are. I became roommates. But before that, he's driving me home one day. And he's just like, you're not going to the gym tonight? I'm like, no, no. He's like, why? I'm like, because I'm going to the gym early in the morning. He's like, oh, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's like, wait, okay. So, so like, yeah. so, so that one chick you, you, you dated in England that, you know, popped back up. And it was just like, wait, you, you two broke up? And I was just like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't, only because I had to leave England. And he's like, all right, so you dated no one after? I'm like, I dated this one girl after in the evangelical church. He's like, what was that like? I was like, oh, it was a dumpster fire. It was like the worst relationship I've ever had. And he's just like, he's just like, then why did you stay? Like, how long were you in it? I'm like, oh, eight months. He's like, well, why the fuck would you stay in in there so long? And I was like, well, the idea is that is that through God, all of these very tangible hardships will will, will will. And as I'm saying this, he almost crashes the car because he starts looking at me, going like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Um, but it, it, we, we weren't on the same page about anything. But we, but I had a lot of people, and I was a new, I was new to the evangelical church. Like, try to, there's something about the evangelical church today. Everyone wants to play matchmaker, man. Everyone's like, oh, this guy, and this girl. I was like, oh, what about this guy and this girl? So it gets really, really tiresome. Um, and so they're like, oh, Arthur, how about you and let's call her uh, Ashley for argument's sake. Arthur, how about you and Ashley? I was just like, no, not really. And they're like, oh, you know, you never know. Like, God has a funny way of working. And I was just like, eh, no, no, thanks. And then we started dating. And it was a dumpster fire. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I was praying about it. And nothing was going right. And I, everything, all my prayers were coming out as no. But at the same time, I'm still, like, pursuing this. Because I have a bunch of people in the church telling me to keep pursuing it. Even though I know, they're having me question my own intuition and my own faith. And... We're in a retreat somewhere in the Sierra Nevadas, and they're doing like a Christian worship session for like two hours. They're in a small cabin. Oh, yeah. Everyone has their hands up, and I'm trying, man. I'm I'm trying to feel something, right? And <laughs> it's rough. Getting, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, can we, can we like guys? Can we do like a hymn or something? Like I would feel like more connected <laughs> to that, you know? Like we do some, yeah. some you know, some actual music with some weight to it spiritually. Like you know, that's. That's, that's treading. I'm, I'm treading on dangerous territory now. But um, but um, I, I had my hands up and my eyes closed. And my my girlfriend at the time, she was getting into being a worship leader. So I was like, all right, I have to be sort of be on board, I guess, right? 
But everyone has their eyes closed. I put my hands down and I look around and it's like, I don't feel a damn thing. I do not feel a damn thing. And I got sort of like a flash of stained glass and a cathedral and I was like, whoa. And that was that was about that was January twenty sixteen. And I sort of ignored hmm. it because all my friends and my girlfriend were in the evangelical church, but I finally came around to being like, all right, I was Catholic once upon a time, and I knew that wasn't quite it. What yeah. about orthodoxy? Because orthodoxy is, you know, it's the original church. Like, well, how come no one talks about that? Like, they, they haven't changed at all, at least from my understanding. And that's when I came to orthodoxy, and my, my life rapidly improved. So it was a very long-winded um, sort of sharing that, like, my, my path greatly improved the orthodoxy, and, you know... Of, of, of asking you, because in my mind, I don't really want anyone to be in my faith and regress as a person, and, you know, sort of, like, miserable and hate everyone and hate themselves, and, it, it, like, oh, at least they're still here. It's like, I, I mean, it, what, we, let's say for argument's sake they come back here in a roundabout way, but they come back better, maybe that's for the best. I don't know. I, I can't fully, I can't fully determine that, but... When I see people go to other faiths, they become a Muslim, they become a Buddhist. I've had friends who were Taoists. I've, I've had very, very, very spiritually enlightened Zoroastrian friends. They go to other faiths and they flourish. Am, am I going to sit here and say that they're, they're evil? No. No, I'm not. So I guess my question to you is, how did you start to notice your, aside from this just amazing, amazing story that you've shared, um, that that seems to be like sort of like the, the grandest story in your life of how your life has improved. But did you was it a pretty was it a pretty tangible understanding that your life was improving from the, from the Norse pagan faith from the get go, or take some time, or what was that like for you? Hmm, it's a great question. Well, I think there's two there's two sides of that coin of of, of paganism, like. The, the first side is um, there's the practical day-to-day like moral code of, of heathenry or paganism that definitely has benefited my life um, in a very tangible, logical way. And I'll, I'll go into that because I think it's important for your listeners to kind of know what we believe and what we espouse. And I also think there's the other side of the coin is spiritual aspect where... Um, <laughs> I'll be honest, man. It's it's been hard. It's not it's not been easy. But I always think about because I'm a nerd. I think about uh, Spider Man, like fucking Uncle Ben. Like with great power becomes comes great responsibility. Like you see things and you're given things, but um, like the Bible says, to to whom much is given, much is required. Like I think that's kind of like a spiritual universal truth that if you perceive the fire, you're gonna feel the heat. You know, like every time. And so I'll, I'll discuss the spiritual aspect first. Um, I'll be real, man. I just, uh, and this is why I haven't really been posting on Instagram so much. I think I share with you this over a message, but I'm going to be a dad. I have my own business that is going very well. and I have a lot of work, which is great, but it's also a lot of work. Um, I just moved into a new house. Uh, we're raising chickens. My wife is pregnant, so... She really can't do anything physical, work with the chickens because of the bacteria and stuff with their, their chicken shit. Um, and I have to clear land, you know, because it's pretty where we, we have an acre of land out here in the country and it's kind of overgrown. So I had to take my chainsaw, clear that out. 
Um, I've had to, I've repainted our entire house um, with my brother. I've been very exhausted and very tired and I've honestly, I've, I've gone through kind of a spiritual drought in this, in this sense. And, but what's, what's interesting is that in Christianity, I think if I felt that drought, I, I would feel like there was something wrong. But I know with my faith that my gods are watching me to see, this is a test. Like, I talk a lot about what being a man is all about. But as Marcus Aurelius says, quit talking about what it means to be a good man and just be one. Like, this is the time for me to nut up or shut up. And this is the time where I need to be more loving toward my wife, understanding toward her, and I need to be kinder toward my friends, and I need to get rest, and I need to... Um, find time to go to my altar and spend time with my gods and ancestors, and it, it's really this is this is life. This is real life, and it's not ecstatic. I've had those ecstatic experiences, like meeting Odin and everything like that. And what I thought was I was going to be a dad, but for every mountain peak, you have to go back down into the valley. That's just the way it goes. But a strong spiritual formation allows you to continue to keep going even when you're going into the depths or even when you're going into the hard-to-navigate places. And so that's where it ties back into the practical side of heathenry. Our values are um, honor. Like, personal honor is the most important thing that a man can have because it takes a lifetime to build honor, but it takes just a moment to lose it. And so it's something that you always have to be on guard about. Like, and I live in the South where... Which, which I love about the South, is that a man's honor and reputation is still very important down here, uh, as opposed to, it's not so much the same up north where I'm from, or even in California, uh, where my wife is from, or other places that I've been to, but down here, it's still incredibly important. It takes a while to get to be in someone's circle, but once you're in there, once you've proven yourself to these folks, then you're in, and they'll do anything for you. I've had friends come rake my leaves, friends help me move, guys I barely know, but because I've proven that I'm an honorable man, you know, in the gym, getting to know these guys. And they're Christians, too. I mean, everyone's a Christian here. But they respect me because they see my character. Like, they're more concerned about the character that I present rather than the, do I check off the right theological boxes. And to me, that's beautiful. So honor is super important. Like, doing what you say you're going to do consistently. Um, honor is a, a huge thing. Another huge thing is what we would call, like, the, the, the circle of frith. Like, this idea of building frith, which is essentially peace with other people. And we do that by, a lot of it is by gift giving. Like this idea of a gift for a gift, which Havaball talks about. Like, you give someone a gift, they give something back to you. Then you give something back to them. And it continues, it continues. That keeps that person in your orbit. That keeps that person in your gravitational pull. And so, you know that you can always ask something for that person. Because you're, cause they know you're going to pay them back at some point. You know, it, it's like this idea of like mutual aid. It's almost like a, like, like a, like this idea of like what communism should be without the government mandating it happening. It's this natural sense of communal engagement with other folks, helping each other out, sharing their resources because they they believe in each other's cause and they see each other as an extension of themselves. This idea of of, of us being a tribe is incredibly important. You have this idea of loyalty as as well, and, and being being loyal to your people, um, unless they are dishonorable or have dishonored you, so even to the death at some points. And this idea of family family values is incredibly important. Um, being uh, we don't really have we don't have a lot of strict sexual mores for single people. Like 
if you want to sleep around, go for it. We don't really care. It happened in our faith a lot, like in our lore. But we have a strong emphasis on monogamy and fidelity within marriage. And, um, you know, raising kids to be strong, to be to be self-reliant, to be honorable, to champion their own values, to be unshakable in their own beliefs. And another practical element is self-reliance, too, and not asking things from other people unless you really need them or things from the government, but just doing what you can with your own hands because that, too, builds your honor. So that's just a couple of our values, but, like, all these values are, like, spokes in a wheel that reinforce, like, the central hub of, of paganism that, that helps us, like, carry the weight of life using that wheel further. And um, so I think that when I go through these, like, kind of moments of, like, spiritual um, or existential sadness or anxiety from time to time, which we all do, I have this, like, moral and ethical system that can help me carry that weight through that valley until I inevitably hit that next peak, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, those, those are an amazing, I mean, honor itself, especially for men. I mean, you know, I've, I've listened, to, when I was listening to your podcast with, with Will Spencer, you're talking about, and I have to agree, it's like a lot of the evangelical church sort of eliminating, like, just anything masculine. It's just, it's yes. abundantly feminine. Oh, God. And even even the evangelical church I was going to, like at least the the, the pastor, like sort of like understood that I was going to a, like a college young adult group type thing, as opposed to like one of the actual like just main church. And um, he was saying, it's just like, where are all the men? And I actually I actually asked him when he said that, like, hey man, where are all the women? I'm just seeing a bunch of overgrown sixteen year old girls. Why is no one asking mm -hmm. that question? So that like I really got, it kind of pissed me off because I was just like I was trying. I wasn't trying, like, I was doing everything I could and, and what I understood to be to become a good man. So, like, when I heard that, I was just like, this I mean, is kind of a double standard, y'all. Uh, <laughs> but, um, he, uh, he tried, you know, he tried doing, like, groups, you know, like, all right, we're going to meet at, at Denny's at five in the morning. I was like, all right, cool, I'm down. That's whatever. Uh, it's just like, you know, can men do hard things and getting up early is hard. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's go. And it's just, you know, it was cool for, like, five weeks that we did it, and then it just deteriorated after, But because it, it just wasn't mm. in the makeup of the evangelical church. And I come to Orthodoxy, and I meet all these, like, older, stout, badass Russian and Romanian and Ukrainian and Belarusian dudes, you know? Um, so that was a breath of fresh air. I was, like, the one guy my age there. And they're, like, confused as to why I was there. Like, are you Russian? And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, are you Orthodox? I'm like, well, not yet. And they're like, oh, well, welcome. And then I was like, thanks, thanks. So... And, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I got this sense of honor from the men there and I didn't get that from, from like the evangelical church. So to have honor as, you know, as a honor, self-sufficiency sort of, um, morality in marriage, I think that's, that's a big one because, you know, nowadays, like in the modern world, like what in postmodern world, really the, the postmodern era is ending, but, um, because people are rejecting what's going on, but what they're rejecting is like marriage, not meaning a damn thing you know it's like we got married like oh yeah still sleep around and still see this guy or still see this girl it's just like well, what's the fucking point what's the point why, why'd you do this in the first place monogamy isn't this construct okay guys monogamy is is devotion and growth and strength and beauty yes and divinity it's it's a representation of you know it's it's a physicalized representation of divine masculine, divine feminine, right? That's and, and I'll 
I'll add to that too, being married for almost seven years, it's like, you can say whatever you want about yourself, but your wife will always tell the truth, you know, <laughs> like, she is a, a mirror that, that in a way, she's like the feminine, softer side of you in a way, you're more like the masculine, harder side of her, because in an idealized marriage, like, you're both on the same team, working toward the same things, and my wife and I have I mean, she's from California, so like we have big disagreements about certain things. But um, but at the end of the day, we, we make it work, and 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 I, I honestly think that that cheating and polyamory and and non-monogamy in, in the context of marriage. I mean, I would do whatever you want. So you're wild as if you're not married. I don't care. I mean, I did it. You know, like <laughs> whatever. It's cool. But when you make that commitment, I believe that oaths and vows are the determination of the measure of a man and if you if you vow before um if you vow before god your god and witnesses that you're going to spend your life with the person in sickness and in health for richer and poor so that you part and you break that vow having forsaking all others if you break that my, my dad has a saying which 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 actually no it wasn't my dad somebody else's dad i've, I've always loved the saying a man's only got two things in this world for sure, his word and his balls. And if he loses either of them, he's no longer a man. And I think that guys that end up cheating and going through divorce, they're always broken. And I know people in my life that have gone through divorces, and it still haunts them to this day. That decision and the ramifications of that still haunts them, still defines them. Everything they do is a reaction to to that decision. Not everything, but it, it's, it's often informed by it. So I think there's really nothing more manly than being faithful, being committed. Because it's saying, I value myself so much that I'm not. I'm going to safeguard my love and share it with only one person, grow it and develop it with only one person. I'm I'm not so insecure that I need to go get validation from all these women in the world. My one woman who I have chosen, who I have pursued, is enough for me. That's a fucking manly thing to do, and a fucking manly thing to say. And that's why when you see fucking old couples that are like in their 70s or 80s or 90s holding hands together, that fucking does something to people. That like makes like everybody loves that shit because it's so rare. Because that's a testament to that man's honor. That man has, you know, made it. I mean, he might have might have messed up. You know, you never know. But regardless, he made it that far with that woman, and that's a fucking example for the rest of the entire world that sees it. And there's something spiritual about that example. I feel like we're all called as men to, to offer that same example in our marriages, in our personal conduct, in our character, in the way we conduct our business, in the way we conduct our relationships with our male friends, in the way that we raise our children. We are, we are called to be ambassadors and emissaries of this divine light, of this solar truth. And the more we fill ourselves in this, in this idea of theosis, the more righteous and holy we are, the more we decrease and the more that light increases within us the less people see us and the more they see this ideal, this heroic self. And that gives them a clear and palpable example of what they can achieve too, so that they can do the same thing for people that come below them. And that's how this idea of this holy tradition, this holy order is maintained and that, that torch is passed down from generation to generation. And that's something that the world today hates and abhors because it's something that they cannot destroy. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter how you know, intolerant they think that it is. They can't destroy it because it's true. And it's something that, that has brought forth life and that will continue to bring forth life and guide this planet, guide this realm 
forever. Wow. That's, whew, that's three in a row, bud. <laughs> I'm nobody special, man. I'm just, that, that's just what, the kind of stuff I think about. That's what I believe in, so. Yeah. No, that's, dude, that's, whew, okay. I had this, first of all, I think the one of the worst parts of our sphere, I, actually, it's not really the solar sphere. It's sort of like the the, the dying, crying manosphere is. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's honestly true. I, I told, I told Will this. He's like, see, because he asked me on his podcast. Because says you've never read like Roll of the Moss. I'm like, dude, I haven't read any of those <laughs> manosphere books. And he's like, you basically red pilled yourself with your path. I'm like, yeah. Like when people, people re- repeated stuff to me like, oh, I'm doing monk mode. I'm like, what the fuck's monk mode? I was doing monk mode because I was an Orthodox Christian. Like, what? and I was doing it even before that. Like, what do you mean monk mode? Like, yeah. This guy who came up with monk mode. I'm like, what do you mean he came up with monk mode? Monks came up with monk mode. Like. <laughs> I yeah. was like, what? Um, and so, like a lot of these manosphere things, it's like really, if you, if you just embody, if you if you chase masculinity, you chase being this, you chase these ideals. These are things that are just going to be byproducts of it. That a lot of the things yeah. that are like sort of like selling as the ideal itself when it's not, and that's why the whole manosphere is caving in on itself right now. Because they're talking about like yeah, the way to get laid is to like just focus on yourself and just you know. And like you'll get stronger, but like do it for yourself. Like yeah, like that. Like women are gonna be attracted to men who are more masculine, who are who are, who are cultivating all these masculine ideals. Like it's yeah. it's 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 for that sake. It's not for the sake of getting late. It's like oh, if you yeah. dude, if you if you ignore a girl enough, like she'll come running for you. She'll just come absolutely running for you. Well, no, with the real actual organic bit of that, it's like oh, man's on his path. Women's attracted to that, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. So it's like they don't realize that they've tried to sell the reverse, like the, 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 the they, they, they don't realize that they tried to like sell this splinter, like this smaller section of a grander ideal off as something grand, and that's why it's just absolutely keeping in it itself. And one of the most toxic things about this is like a lot of the like the feminism for men red pill culture is like, bro, you got one itis, man, like. You should be. Like, I, yep. I joke about this for the It's like you got to be dating seven girls at once and just, you know, just really. I'm like, guys, do you have any idea how fucking ridiculous you sound? Okay, let, let's let, let's 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 go downstream for a second for what you're saying. All right, cool. Mm. Let's uh, let's say you're you know, dating seven chicks at once, right? And she finds out, and she becomes this bitter person. And then she comes across this honorable man, and her and the, those two jive, and she has all these traumas. Like, in my mind, I'm trying to add as little trauma to people as possible. Mm-hmm. And I know that's like, that's, 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 that's not something that a lot of people are going to share. They're going to be like, oh, you know, this, the other person made this choice too. You know, if the relationship goes bad and I come out, you know, smelling like roses on my end, but she's not doing too well. That's, that's not me. That, that really isn't me. Uh, I've had, I've said no to a lot of girls as a bartender, as an actor, just as a guy, and I've said no because like I know what you want, I know what I want, I know plain and simple. I'm not gonna make time for you. You're gonna ask me why aren't you here? Why aren't you there? I'm like it's gonna be very simple because I'm gonna be in the gym, I'm gonna be at church, I'm gonna be writing. I value that more than you. And I'm not saying this to, I'm not saying this as a as a reverse psychology thing. I'm saying this as a literal like, this is not a good idea. <laughs> And people, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of girls like, yeah, but, you know, down the line, like, you'll come around or I'll come around. I'm like, no, like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's right. Um, 
That's that's powerful because like every time you say no to that, you're saying yes to yourself. You're saying you're reinforcing to yourself that what you believe is right, and that just like multiplies that. So on the on the top of the manosphere, this is what Jack and I talked about. He was on my podcast. Um, this whole idea of like the solar ideal. So the idea, like for those who are, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this, but I think a lot of people will glom onto the aesthetics of what this is without maybe understanding like the philosophy. Like when you think about what is the solar ideal, it's somebody that is, um, you know, somebody who rises above the din and the darkness of of his life, of his surroundings. He rises above the clouds, um, who who shines a consistent and true light that people literally depend on and can set their watch to because time is, you know, dictated by the sun and by the solar cycle itself. Like, a solar man is able to grow life around him. Everything he touches, he warms up and he causes life to grow from the ground. And he projects radiance and confidence and vision for people that they can see not only where they're going, but they can also see where others are going. In, in the light of what he, he's presenting. And that is what positive masculinity is all about. And that's the kind of the manosphere that I support. What I don't support is the opposite of that, which is the black hole. So the sun is one end of the extreme. The black hole is the other. And the black hole is this, like, anti-matter conglomeration that pulls things into its orbit and destroys them. And these guys that are trying to get laid wearing their fucking Ed Hardy jeans and they're like, you know, bracelets and they're like, you know, like fox claw necklaces and like their weird hair, like or what and their <laughs> fuck me shirts, their Paisley shirts, whatever the hell. Like, they're only in it for their own ego. And they're creating destruction, it, creating a nihilism toward women, toward viewing women as a commodity, um, instead of an actual person. And, and, and I mean, we could go on the side tangent of there seems to be a lot less quality women these days than there might have been in the past. I think there is some validity to that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't quality women out there. You know, that, just because you don't see them all the time, that's a quest. Go on that quest and rescue that that maiden from the dragon, you know, like Hero's Journey shit. So I think the manosphere can either be, and I've talked to masculinity, it, it is a thing. I mean, there are dudes that are just assholes, and all they ever do is bitch about politics or a culture war bullshit, and they're just so focused on themselves and their own, like, relevance that they forget that there's a spiritual component that can help them transcend this this moment in time and help them become legendary and, and you know, even mythological to some degree. And so I, I feel like that's where my work comes in. Like, you're not going to see me talking about politics or vote for this guy or, you know, like, liberate Mr. Potato Head or any of that shit. I'm not going to talk shit about it. It's, it's fucking stupid. What's the condition of your soul? Are you keeping Are you keeping your word? Are you loving your wife? Are you being wise with how you treat other people? Are you leaving something behind so that when you're dead, people will remember you uh, for something more than just your inflammatory tweets? Like, that's the kind of shit that men need to get on. And um, that's why I do what I do. I just see a lack of it. But what's been so cool is that a lot of other guys are starting to realize that too. Like, bitching about things isn't going to change anything. I mean... Everyone always complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. You gotta start here. You gotta start within your own heart and your mind. And I think it, it is taking that God pill. It is realizing that you are not the highest light in your universe. There's something always higher than you. You can reflect that light and you can shine that light down in your sphere of influence. But 
you you might have the energy of that light, but you'll never be that light. <laughs> and so having that sense of humility and submission and respect towards something greater than yourself is, is just so crucial. And um, I, th I think, thankfully, I think we're starting to see a resurgence of that. And, uh, and, and just even looking at Jack's, like, evolution, too, and his, and his whole progression, it's been really cool to see him kind of go, I'm not going to get into it, but just go through everything he's gone through and then come to this place where he writes this incredibly positive book of, like, affirming men um, of all faiths and calling them up to something higher. Like, that's, that's the kind of transformational shift, I think, that is that his example is going to really have a lot of great ripples in this community. And that, and that makes me really excited, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's, it's, it's just, it's just surge of wisdom after surge of wisdom after surge of wisdom. So, I mean, okay, so... Yeah, like, there's, so, there's so much jargon out there that just make that paints, like, that all women are just, like, these inherently, like, evil sort of, like... You know, they're just out there for your money. Or they're out there for your clout. They're not actually out there for you. They're <laughs> this whole just like um, it's 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 really weird. I, 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 that's that's honestly the word for it is weird, and it's a bit disturbing. And it's it just comes from. It, it, it seems like anti, just like a lot of feminism is anti-man. It's like your whole existence being anti-something. A lot of red pill culture is like anti-woman, right? And yeah. Will Spencer and I had this conversation. Actually, it was me, him, Devin Mitrano, and the man behind it, the Awakening Cascadian, I think, yeah, Isaac. We were all saying that like if your if your whole existence is to be anti-anything, you're you're literally nothing, right? You need to be pro something. You need to be something. Be something original. Be something for a net positive, in order to be beneficial to society. Right? Be not, not, not just oh, society, society, the humanity, the spirituality, divinity, all of this. You need to be. You need to be for something. So that that's 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 my whole problem. That, that's my whole beef right now. And you know, if women women are starting to wise up too, man. Like they are. You're starting to see that this whole feminism thing is just one giant mind virus, right? It's just it's just. It takes many strains, for lack of better terms, many many strains of the feminine, the feminism mind virus, right? But I was, I think, I think I mentioned this to Devin on, on our podcast together, or somebody. I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but when I was living in New York City, and I was frequenting, you know, various storied cocktail bars to to get a job, because that's the that's the way you get a job as a bartender. You show up to a bar with with a, with a resume in hand, like, hi. Uh, my name is Arthur, and I just moved here from San Francisco, and, you know, here's my resume. Um, I'm really good at it. Like, no, no, no. They're like, oh, okay, for sure. They'll take your resume, they'll put it in a box somewhere. The manager will never see it, and they'll get a job. That's that's not the way it works in bars. What you do is you go to a bar at around the time that it opens or towards the time that it's closing. So in New York City, that's typically, like, you know, 5 p.m. or 3 a.m., right? So it's, like, one of these complete opposite ends, and you're away from the thick of busy service where... If you try striking up a conversation, it's going to last two minutes because the guy has a million other people to serve. So I go to this bar. Um, it's like it's a very storied cocktail bar, and it's about 3 in the morning. I go outside to get some air. Uh, it's wintertime, and it's a nice crisp air that we don't get here out here in California. So I was enjoying it. Um, and I, I strike up a conversation with this one doorman, very wise man. Um, so him and I start having a series of conversations, and one of them starts to speak about feminism. He's just like, well, feminism is weird because they're like, they hate men, and they're also trying to prove that they can do everything that men do. 
But they're also they're also like they're also vilifying men at the same time, but they're also the same man that they're the kind of man they're vilifying is the same man they're trying to be. It's like well, what kind of man is our feminists trying to emulate? It seems to me that they're, em- they're emulating the worst of men, the Machiavellian, the, the men with no morals, the men with the worst character, the men with a giant black hole ask a detriment to society, detriment to humanity, yeah. detriment to spirituality. So I think that feminism, like a lot of women are starting to wise enough that that's like what feminism really is. And that they're, they're I forget who said this, it wasn't, it wasn't Marcus Garvey, it was someone else from the Harlem Renaissance and they were saying that women are so focused on everything that being able to do everything men can do, when they should be so focused on everything, do, doing everything that man cannot, and I completely, mm-hmm. it's like well, I'll, I'll, yeah, go yeah, no, all right, yeah, exactly. And we have a little bit of a lag, so I was like, oh shoot, uh, but uh, so honestly, I think I think the person to blame for feminism is men, and, and here's why, and it's gonna be kind of like a base thing to say, but. A lot, a lot of men just haven't haven't stepped up as fathers. Like you think about men, maybe back in like when, when feminism first started coming. Uh, first of all, I gotta say this: like not all feminism is bad. Um, yeah. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello. Oh, hang on. Uh, oh no! Are you still there? Shoot. Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Uh oh. Oh no. Hello. Arthur, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hello? Okay, cool. Alright, alright. Awesome. <laughs> well, uh, maybe edit that for now. So, what I'm going to say then is that, for example, my wife is successful at what she does, and she's very very talented, very competent, and I believe, I'm, I believe in meritocracy, I believe that if you are, if you're good at what you do, then you should have the job, like, that's, for the, mo- for the most part, like, that's, that's the way that it's always been done, like, it, the best person for something, the, the qualified person should get the job, I think where it gets, it gets crazy is this idea that, like, every instance of a man being a man is somehow oppressive to, to everybody, and everything, which is ridiculous, um, and I think that's just because that is the order of things. It is the way of things, because that's the way things have always been. I think that the idea of people call it progress to want to to change that and to, to essentially tear down the statues of men and put women up in that place. And in some instances, I'm, I'm sure women could probably do a better job than men at certain things. There's no doubt about that. But, 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 but there has to always be that fatherly input and that fatherly guidance um, with, within the order of the world. And I think that a lot of men have abdicated their roles of being good fathers, especially when it comes to, to girls and, and to women. And so they grow up with these daddy issues. And instead of, and the way that they resolve and restitute those issues is by projecting them on all men and projecting them on the culture at large. And I truly think if we had fathers that really championed their daughters and really built into them and were an example of good, positive, solar masculinity in their life, then you would start seeing a reduction in this, like, extremism um, in this feminist camp. Because, you know, they realize that this is a this is the first man that I love. My father is my first man that I love. And, and he he is only there to protect me, to, to nurture me, to grow me, to prepare me to be the person that I can be at my fullest potential. 
And um, so, yeah, I, I think that men just need to, to level up and, like, just stop being absent and, like, stop valuing work or, you know, uh, material possessions or or watching t- TV on the couch and, and, you know, drinking a six-pack over their kids. And I think if that were to happen, there would probably be a, a shift in the zeitgeist. In that area. Yeah, I would agree that man really hasn't taken responsibility for its part in creating what's called like third wave like radical feminism because mm-hmm. i mean the, the initial wave of feminism feminism had a lot to a lot of good things to, to bring up a lot to say but it's just it's kind of gotten out of control you know obviously um and it started the, the the fruits were there in the beginning and you haven't really seen fruits since honestly um but i think man it's like there were a lot of in my mind there were a lot of women suffering in silence through these men who were neglecting their roles as husbands as fathers and you're creating these just this just growing you know suffering group of women you know and you know a lot a lot of men like okay well you know in the year 1200 you know it's like it was all about strength so you know women just just had to do what men said i'm like well guess what it's not the year 1200 anymore so unless we go back you know to the stone age the bronze age or you know, the colonial age, what have you, we're trying to aspire to something more divine, we're trying to aspire to something more morally sound, we're trying to aspire to something greater, right? And that's 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 been, been sort of like the, the better part of, quote-unquote, you know, advanced civilization. It's less violent, it's less barbaric, but we've also lost the fruits of, you know, of, of manhood, we've lost the fruits of what it means to be a warrior, we've lost the fruits of hard labor, we've lost the fruits of a lot of these things that have made us weak, so that's, that's it's, a, it's there's duality in this, it's a double-edged sword for sure. Um, but I think if, if men shape up, if men realize that they're ruled, they take, they take responsibility, and women take responsibility uh, together, I think we'll have a much brighter future and i see that coming um and i see that coming mainly because of will spencer talking about the the great reconciliation which i i think really is is coming that men and women have both wronged each other and it doesn't matter who wronged each other first or wronged each other more it's the fact there's a grand forgiveness to move forward because we ultimately love each other men and women love each other plain and simple um with that you know we have this we have this great black hole that is becoming more and more evident. It's becoming more and more evident in politics, in culture, and consciousness. And they hide in imagery, but now they're not even hiding in imagery anymore. But they're receiving a massive backlash. This growing interest in Satanism—not not really growing interest, but this growing, this more visible view of Satanism that they're trying to seize power right now in a, in a bunch of ways. And it seems to me that. It, it, it's in their worst. It's 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 the opposite of their interest for men to be to achieve their fullest potential. Because if men achieve their fullest potential, then they don't have a chance in hell. Um, and I, I think that I think there are multiple paths in this. I think they're all solar. They're all towards being a light. They're all towards being grand light, as opposed to a black hole. You know, as opposed to the nihilistic or the nice guy. Or the, you know, like the, I'm such a nice guy that why are you seeking me to, like, type yeah. it? You know, it's the opposite of this, 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 this other respective black hole. Um, that's how we sort of counteract um, what's, what's going on in that regard. So, it's, it seems to me, you know, Muslim, Muslim men, pagan men, Christian men, that we have this common enemy, that we have this path to walk down towards. What do you see as the next steps for man in the solarite deal? Do you, do you, do you see? Hmm. Do, you, do you see? How do you see society changing? How do you see faith changing? Not necessarily faith changing, but 
do you see the expression of faith growing more and more in all religions? Like, do, do, do you see that something is happening? Like, I know this is a very grand, very abstract question, but I'm basically asking you visceral sort of idea of what the future looks like. So, yeah. I, so, first of all, I think you and I have a, a semantic difference. Um, I don't believe in Satan uh, as a literal thing, um, but I believe in what you're talking about, and, and I just would use a different language for it. And, and to kind of answer the question and give a pagan's perspective, so I the the main point of the gods is they're, they are the gods of order, except for Loki, who is pretty chaotic. But they're fighting against what's called the Jotnar, or the Jotuns. And the Jotuns are... Uh, it gets translated into giants, but they're not necessarily always, like, Nephilim or, like, you know, whatever, Goliath. They're, they're, they're just these... They're agents of chaos that are always trying to subvert and destroy the Aesir's and the Vanir's order within the Nine Realms. And this all culminates at uh, Ragnarok, which is the... A lot of parallels between that and Armageddon um, in, in the Christian text. And it's this idea that all these i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go through all the lore but there's essentially loki who is kind of the deceiver within the aesir gods he brings forth um these he he's a father of of jormungandr the world serpent fenrir the this like massive wolf um and um i mean if you've seen uh, the, the marvel movie thor ragnarok they actually kind of get into this like sort of accurately and these these creatures, these these giant creatures, rise from the depths and they rage war on the Aesir gods, and all of the gods go out fighting to the death, and many of them die. And it seems that all hope is lost, but it's not because some of them survive, and the order it's implied at the end of the saga that the order resets, starts over again, and a new golden age comes. My wife's pregnant. I, I almost see that there this time on Earth right now is there is a gestation of a more heroic vision of masculinity right now. And yeah. I think that one of the reasons why is because we we're able to access each other with social media. We're able to to kind of have this collective conversation in real time about, hey, what strength can we draw from these ancient texts and ancient sources? And I think with that, that that consciousness, the nature abhors a vacuum. When men rise up, when when this idea of masculine order arises, there is a chaotic, um, uh, chaotic vibration or energy that also rises to counteract it. And birth, the, the process of birth is a violent process. Uh, obviously, if you think about like a, a physical birth of, of humans or animals or whatever. It's a painful and violent process. It's a chaotic process in and of itself. But once that process is undergone, if that child fights for its life and makes it through out of the womb and into the world, then what that child can do, the possibilities are literally endless. Because that, that thing has been birthed from this chamber of this womb. It has grown to the point where it can no longer be held in that space. And even though everything is fighting against it to keep it in, it comes out because it needs it to come out. And it needs to go through that chaotic, that chaotic process. I think there's a similar 
parallel in the world right now. I think that these forces of chaos are coming against this because there is <laughs> there is a way in which it is best to live. And I think that that way is is not a fun all the time. It's not about the glorification of individuals or everybody's preferences, but it's this stern, fatherly, we live in this wild world. We live in this chaotic world. We need to create boundaries. We need to create um, definitions. We need to create vision. We need to create a sense of civic um, and civil uh, solidarity and um, com camaraderie to be able to carry forth this vision and build a better world. Because as Jack talks about, like we live in an empire of nothing where everybody's opinion is, is as important as everybody else and everyone's mad at everybody for everything else. But what it reminds me, <laughs> it reminds me of the Tower of Babel, right? Where you have all these people that have come together and then they God confuses their language because they try to become like God in that story. They build this tower to the heavens, which I feel like we have done as a society. And I feel like in a sense that what's happening is our language is being confused right now. As a civilization, we've come so far, but we've lost our bearing on our spiritual roots, whatever those roots may be. And so the gods are confusing our language so that as a result, um, we have to start over again. I feel like we're not going to necessarily win the world, but what we can do is win ourselves, and we can win our tribe, and then we can have this compounding effect where in the ruins of society, after this great Tower of Babel, we can be birthed as an infant, um, as, the new, as the new king, the new philosopher king, the new god king. Collectively, we as men can rise again like, let's say, like an Odin or a Jesus or whatever, um, not as individuals, but, but as a collective group of people that advocate these ideas and just carry them forth. Because if we don't fight for them, advocate for them, it could be a stillbirth of, of our values and of what we believe. And I, I think that that's my fear. And furthermore, when I see men just talk, it's all about getting laid, or it's all about Mr. Potato Head, or it's all about Dr. Seuss, or it's all about this or that, or, or wearing masks or not wearing, whatever. That's a distraction from the spiritual task that's at hand. And that's to champion these values and to carry them forth with, with clarity, with confidence, with conviction to our sons, grandsons, brothers, um, and, and then turn slowly turn this ship around and bring it back toward order, stability, wisdom, and, um, and strength. And I think that this generation is going to define whether that happens or not. So I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what the future is going to look like, but I am encouraged that I think there's men that are preparing themselves for the perilousness of the task at hand, and they realize this vision is more than their comfort and more than, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, just hitting on women and drinking a beer at the end of the day. That There's, there's a fight to be engaged in here. And, and again, I, I go back to the Bible. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against princes and principalities of darkness. Like, this, this shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't seek to physically attack or assault people, but we should seek to assault the things that keep them in bondage and, and wake them up to the reality of what they could be. You know, I mean, every, every single person on this earth is a potential brother or sister. We can't forget that anybody can change their mind. I mean, before the podcast, I, I told you, I've changed my mind quite a bit in my life. And that's because people were not afraid to talk to me. And they weren't afraid to tell me what was true. And I was not afraid to listen. 
So that's what I would say to do. I love that so much. That's a unifying message. I hear way too many people say, hey man, if you don't know now, you don't know. Like, no, 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 no. That's where you're at in your path right now. Things have become yeah. so abundantly clear to you right now that that's how you've gotten there. There are some things that it just it haven't been made clear to people at all. Yes. They've had one paradigm their entire life, and nothing has been able to, to, to crack the programming. Nothing has been able to, to separate them from the programming. And you're sitting here saying that because you got past the programming, that now that you've gone past, I don't understand. You know, if you haven't figured it out now, it's like, oh, it ends with you, I see. <laughs> or it ends with you and your family, or you and your current community are saying the same thing. It's asinine. It's illogical. So I love it's a unifying message, but it is sort of, and I, I, I agree. Like there's, there's some can't say when. I know it's partially right now and partially probably a couple decades in the future. You know, I think it'll. I think honestly, I, I think we'll be sitting pretty for the next ten years. Honestly, I know it doesn't seem it doesn't seem that way. A lot of people are like, Whoa, what about this? What about Dr. Seuss and this Potato Head? You know. <laughs> you know? Um, no, I think I think we're actually we're about to turn a corner. I think we're we're sitting pretty right now, honestly. Um, I think beyond that, that's when the real work begins. But I think, like you said, men are preparing themselves for that, and that's that's the encouraging part. And I think you are literally, as you you started that statement with, "My wife's pregnant." You saying like, "I am literally my path is the embodiment of what's going on." And I I, I happen to agree. I happen to agree with you in that regard. Well, not only that, but I'm also literally trying to birth the future so that I can change it, you know? And, and I would encourage all men, I'm serious, find a quality woman. And I'll tell you the best dating advice <laughs> real quick. This is not my last story for the night. I told you earlier about my oath. I have someone in my life that's close to me, a good friend of mine, and I told him the story of my oath. And this is a guy who, um, he had a hard time finding a woman that he could love. He liked to play the field. He liked to, you know, do the game, do the alpha shit, whatever. Like, he liked, you know, hooking up and all that stuff. But he was never satisfied with that stuff. And so I just encouraged him to take an oath like I did. And he ended up doing that uh, with me, uh, an oath of celibacy. And his oath's about to be over. And he's ended up finding this woman who's just coincidentally, quote-unquote, come into his life in, like, the most organic way. And I've met her, and she's she is an incredible person. And he, she's not the kind of girl he would have gone for before the oath. But this oath has taught him what really matters in life. And, and he sees her value as so much more than just flesh and blood, but he sees it holistically. And as a result, it, it looks like... I was actually just texting him, like, like they went on a date tonight, things went well, and uh, he's interested in pursuing this with a seriousness that he has really never pursued anyone before. Because this oath and this, this commitment to a higher principle, just like in my life, has, has separated the wheat from the chaff in his life. And all these things and all these conditions and psychoses that were in his head have just gone away because he has taken a firm command over his own destiny. And I just want to leave the audience with that final note. No matter who you are, if you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, I've been in your shoes. I absolutely have. And I, and I by no means am any great sage or great prophet or anything. I'm just a dude that's trying to figure this out. It starts now. 
it starts with the decisions that you make right now. It starts with what you value right now. It starts with finding the right woman. It starts with making yourself the right man to attract the right woman first. Finding that woman, marrying that woman, having children with that woman, raising those children in wisdom and in love and in strength. And if every single one of you listening to this podcast did that, in 10, 20 years, we could have a whole new generation of people carrying these values and having starting families of their own and bringing this for, well, hopefully not that they're 10 years old, but you know what I mean, like 15, 20 years from now. And they could start, um, you know, disseminating this to their kids. And that's how you create a culture. But you have to play the long game. This You're not going to win this war with a tweet. You're not going to win this war with a rant. You're going to win this war with a vision and a purpose. So going back to Asia, the Chinese have this thing where, you know, they have a hundred-year plan of what they want their country to be, a thousand-year plan. And they're going to get there because Americans have, like, a, the attention span of a gnat. We have, like, an eight-second attention span. We can't focus on anything. We have one political ideology, then we elect someone with a totally different one, and we just go back and forth all the time, whereas the Chinese go straight forward. We need to have that mentality. We need to have this hundred-year plan that, hey, this is what we're going to commit to. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, but we're going to raise kids that have that same vision, and they're going to impart that vision to their kids, and eventually... By assimilation, the world changes, things become better, and then maybe possibly, possibly, a golden age can come upon this earth again, and people of all nationalities, all creeds, all races, all religions can, can value what truly matters, and that's the divine, holy, and sacred order of the everlasting truth and the eternal light. That's, that's the perfect thing to, to sort of conclude with. Um, is to literally find someone willing to help forge the world, help forge a better world, quite, quite literally. So folks, go follow Oaks and Oaths. He's one of my favorite content creators on Instagram, period. A lot of enlightening information for a growing group of people who are seeking honor and are having more and more positive influence on this sphere of Instagram and the solar sphere and Hopefully it can turn the manosphere into something less anti-feminist and something a little more productive. Uh, his handle is Oaks and Oaths, no underscores, no no dots, no periods. He uh, His podcast is of the same name. be found on Apple Podcasts, can be found on Spotify, any place where podcasts are subscribable. And in your lives... Be as unshakable as oaks in all of your oaths. Good night and good storms. Thank you.